welcome to Season 13 of Pick 6 Movies. While 13 is traditionally a number associated with bad luck, here at Pick 6 Headquarters, 13 is just a stretched out 4, which means golf, which makes us think of gophers. And guess how many letters the word gophers has? That's right, 7. And of course I mean 007, old Blue Eyes himself. I'm being told Blue Eyes is Frank Sinatra. Well then, old drink em and shoot em himself, James Bond. That's right, you have found the premiere episode of our 13th season, Bonds. James Bonds. We have six films in the chamber, and we're going to fire them right at your ear holes. First, we're going to tell you a little bit about these movies, and some fascinating stories that sit alongside them, and then Trumpet Guy shows up to let me, Bo Ransdell, and my oldest friend, Chad Cooper, know that it's time to sit down and hash these movies out. There are silly voices, occasional confusion, and a whole lot of exasperation. I think you're going to like it. But enough out of me. Get ready to shake and not stir your way into the quote-unquote classic James Bond film and episode one of season 13 of Pick 6 Movies, Goldfinger. Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, I'm one of your hosts, Chad Cooper, and we're kicking off Season 13 with a podcast feature favorite, the Pick 6 Pop Quiz. And you're our lucky contestant on this first episode of Season 13. (laughs) Maybe Unlucky 13 will be your lucky number. What's your name? (laughs) Where are you from? Uh, What do you do for a living? That's great, that's great. Now remember the rules. Answer two of the three questions and you will have a chance to win a really big prize. First question, what character has appeared the most number of times in major motion pictures? That's a tough one. Think about it. Well, the answer, of course, is not Sherlock Holmes. The world-famous detective is the character that's been adapted most to the screen, but it's elementary, my dear Watson, that Sherlock Holmes has been in over 250 film interpretations. But the character that has appeared in more movies than any other character is Santa Claus, with over 800 appearances, according to some random website that our researchers found. Let's move on to question two. Name two of the other characters that fall behind Santa Claus Think about it. Time's almost up. Well, the answers, of course, are the almighty God and the thorn in his underwear, the unholy overlord himself, Satan. You're keeping your own score and we're on the honor system here. So what's your score now? Well, let's get to that third and final question and wrap up this bit. Final question. What movie series has the most films associated with it? Think about the theme of this season and ignore it. Because if you said James Bond, you're wrong. The James Bond series falls in the number two spot of the film series with the most entries. The answer, of course, is the comic strip-inspired Blondie series, featuring that lovable 1950s housewife, her incorrigible giant sandwich-eating husband Dagwood, and their lovable dog Daisy. Between 1938 and 1950, there were a total of 28 feature films released over this 12-year span, including... Blondie Takes a Vacation, Blondie Goes Latin, Blondie's Secret, and Beware of Blondie. (laughs) That Blondie sounds like one out-of-control crazy lady in 28 wacky black-and-white madcap films that nobody living today has ever seen. The James Bond series will soon have 25 films in its official Ian Canada films with the scheduled upcoming release of No Time to Die. That total does not include the 1967 adaptation of Casino Royale or the 1983 release of Never Say Never again. Movies we will definitely discuss later in this season. James Bond, you're going to have 25 movies, all featuring the same character, 007. And 14 of those movies are all based on the novels of one man, Ian Flynn. 
Fleming, the man who created James Bond and the main focus of tonight's introduction. Ian Fleming was born on May 28, 1908, and his family was rich. Their fortune came from their connection to the Robert Fleming and Company Merchant Bank, and his parents were Evelyn and Valentine Fleming, the latter of which was a member of Parliament for Henley from 1910 till 1917, until his untimely death when he was killed by German shelling on the Western Front during World War I. And when Ian Fleming's father, Valentine Fleming, died, his obituary was written by Winston Churchill. He was kind of a big deal. When Valentine Fleming died, he left his estate to his wife, Evelyn, and set up trust funds for all of their kids. And there was a stipulation in his will that said if his widow, Evelyn, ever remarried, she pretty much would forfeit the entire estate that was left to her. So guess what? She never remarried. Ian Fleming had an older brother, Peter, who would later go on to become a successful travel writer after serving in World War II in behind-the-lines operations in Norway and Greece. Ian Fleming had two younger brothers, Michael and Richard, and he had a half-sister who was born out of wedlock in 1925 as the result of a long-term affair between artist Augustus John and the widow Evelyn Fleming six years after Valentine's death. Look at you, Evelyn, never getting married. I'm down with that. Ian Fleming and his older brother Peter, they were just one year apart and they were pretty close. They were enrolled at the Dunford Preparatory School in Dorset, England at the same time and this school had quite an eccentric headmaster named Tom Pellet who encouraged boys to nurture their own individuality and he also gave out regular beatings at the school. Ian Fleming at the time wrote to his mother and said, I'm afraid I do not like school very much. I do not what form I'm in in so many ways. I'm afraid I've not made many friends. In addition to or because of the beatings and the few friends, Ian Fleming, as it turned out, wasn't a very good student, and he often clashed with his teachers. Fleming later attended Eton College along with his brother Peter, and it turned out that Ian Fleming found out that he was a pretty good athlete, and he pursued some early interest in writing, and he co-edited an issue of the school magazine that featured his first published short story. Despite some success in athletics and writing, it was decided mostly by his mom, that Fleming would leave Eton and head to Sandhurst Military College. And as you might guess, military school did not agree with Fleming's rebellious nature. So Ian Fleming's mom sent him to this school in Austria. Here, Fleming found himself greatly influenced by the founders of the school, Aaron Forbes Dennis, and his wife, Phyllis Bottom, who was a celebrated author at the time. Bottom encouraged Fleming's fledgling interest in writing, and here Fleming began to come into his own, describing this as the golden time when the sun always shone. As Fleming matured, he turned out to be quite the ladies' man, and he earned a reputation as a womanizer. But even the most adept womanizers eventually fall in love, and Fleming asked the daughter of a Swiss landowner to marry Ian returned to London, where his mother expressed disapproval of their impending nuptials, and, well, the wedding was called off. Now, although they never wed, the first name of this young lady, Monique, found itself in the writings of Ian Fleming much later in life as the mother's name of a very famous spy. After applying for a job with the foreign office and failing the entrance exam, his family connections landed him a job with Reuters news agency. After that, he tried his hand at banking and stock brokering with unsuccessful results. Actually, he was a terrible stockbroker. Around this time in 1934, Fleming met socialite Anne O'Neill, 
who was 21 years old at the time, and she found him charming and handsome, and Fleming was, well, a womanizer. You can do the math on this relationship. Now, at the time, Anne O'Neill was married to Lord O'Neill, who was an aristocrat and financier, and had two children during this marriage, but in 1936, she had an affair with Esmond Cecil Harmsworth, heir to Lord Rothmere, owner of the famed London tabloid newspaper, The Daily Mail. Anne's husband, Lord O'Neill, well, he was killed in 1944, and by this time, Harmsworth was the new Lord Rothmere, and so Anne married Harmsworth, aka Lord Rothmere, in 1945. Now, we're going to come back to Anne a little bit later. As World War II threw the world into chaos, Ian Fleming found himself serving as a naval intelligence officer. He never saw combat, but he did find himself in some relatively important behind-the-scenes jobs. He traveled to the United States and helped to write the framework for the new Office of the Coordinator of Information, which eventually would become the Office of Strategic Services, which would eventually become the Central Intelligence Agency. Fleming was the personal assistant to Admiral John Godfrey, the Director of Naval Intelligence for the Royal Navy, a man many speculate was the inspiration for M, the head of the MI6 agency and boss of a very famous spy. Fleming helped establish the 30th Assault Unit, which was a British commando unit that accompanied troops to gather intelligence. Fleming assisted in multiple espionage missions, including Operation Mincemeat, which was a successful British misinformation and deception operation to disguise the 1943 Allied invasion of Sicily. Now here's what went down. Two members of British intelligence obtained the body of a homeless guy who died from eating rat poison. They dressed him up as an officer of the Royal Marines, placed personal items on his body to identify him as a made-up Captain William Martin. Now among these fake personal items were correspondence between two British generals, which suggested that the Allies were planning to invade Greece and Sardinia with Sicily as a mere distraction. This homeless corpse in a military uniform was transported to the southern coast of Spain by submarine and it was released close to the shore where it was found the next day by a Spanish fisherman. The Spanish government got involved, the Germans got wind of the documents on the dead guy, reinforcements were shifted to Greece and Sardinia, and Sicily didn't get any at all. That's crazy. Near the end of the war, Fleming attended a conference in Jamaica that proved to be a seminal moment in his life. For it was during this trip that Fleming decided that after the war ended, he was going to move to Jamaica, swim in the sea, and write books. And not just any books, spy novels. Fleming's work during World War II created a real interest in the world of espionage. But when the war ended, Fleming found himself as the foreign manager of the London Sunday Times from 1945 to 1949. Writing for a newspaper didn't have the same je ne sais quoi as his former life in the military and Fleming found himself daydreaming of a better life, more specifically on the island of Jamaica. Now, Fleming wasn't just going to be another Walter Mitty, so he packed his bags and decided that he would return to Jamaica, which he did multiple times as his contract with the newspaper allowed him to take two months off every year for vacation. And he didn't visit just any regular resort. Fleming bought a former donkey racetrack in Jamaica and built a home that he called Goldeneye. I told you his family had money. Now, Anne, remember Anne O'Neill, who married Lord Rothmere, proprietary of the London Daily newspaper, The Daily Mail? Yeah, that Anne O'Neill? Well, she and Ian Fleming remained, how shall I say this, in contact over the years. They were so much in contact that Anne became pregnant with Fleming's child. Then Lord Rothmere said, we're getting divorced. Then Ian Fleming and Anne said, we're getting married. So to take his mind off his upcoming wedding, Fleming decided to sit down and finally write his first novel with a suave, handsome leading man who would turn out to be Fleming's alter ego. And this character needed a name, a name that was bold and manly, the kind of name you would associate with studying birds. See, Fleming came across the reference book, Birds of the West Indies, 
by the world-renowned ornithologist James Bond. And here, Fleming found the name of his most famous super spy. Reportedly, the real James Bond, the one who was a big bird brain expert, well, later in life, he didn't appreciate that his name was associated with sex and violence, sadism, gambling, alcohol, snobbery, and misogyny. <laughs> Birds. So Fleming's in Jamaica, and he starts writing, and he's smoking, reportedly polishing off 70 cigarettes a day. But if he sleeps eight hours a day, good God, that's a cigarette every 15 minutes. Whoa. In January of 1952, Ian Fleming typed away while filling his lungs with carcinogens and drinking heavily. And by March, Fleming finished his first James Bond novel, Casino Royale, in under two months. That same month, Ian and Anne were married. And in August of that same year, they welcomed their son, Casper. 1952 was a big year in the Fleming household. As Fleming finished the final drafts of Casino Royale, he sent a copy to his friend and literary editor, William Plummer, who said of the novel, So far as I can see, the element of suspense is completely absent. Now, despite this notable omission, Plummer thought the book had sufficient promise and sent a copy to the publishing house, Jonathan Cape, who wanted nothing to do with Ian Fleming's book until someone reminded them that they managed the successful travel books of Peter Fleming, Ian's older brother. And editors at the publishing house said, oh, that Ian Fleming? Why, yes, certainly. We'll be happy to publish your novel. In April of 1953, just over a year from the date Ian Fleming completed his first novel, Casino Royale, the book was published by Jonathan Cape in the UK. Fleming described his first novel as a dreadful, oafish opus and said, My own feeling is that the life of a book of this sort is not long. But Casino Royale was a success, leading to three print runs back to back to back. And it got pretty good reviews from notable international publications like Time Magazine. With all this high praise, it was a good thing that Fleming had already started on a follow-up to the novel titled Live and Let Die, which hit bookshelves in April, one year after the debut novel. Fleming would go on to publish a new James Bond novel for the next 14 years, consisting of 12 novels and two collections of short stories. And with all this popularity, it was only a matter of time before Hollywood would come knocking, looking to take James Bond from the page to the silver screen. Ian Fleming always thought James Bond would make a hell of a good movie, and Fleming went so far as to create an original treatment for a film that got wrapped up in the whole movie-making machine, and it withered and sputtered and kind of, you know, lost steam. So Fleming ended up taking that source material from the screenplay and used it as the basic for Thunderball. Now this screenplay also led to some lawsuits because a couple other writers helped Fleming on the screenplay treatment and it eventually turned into a big legal mess. In 1958, Albert R. Broccoli set up a meeting with Fleming to discuss bringing the James Bond books to life. But due to the impending death of Broccoli's wife, a business partner took his place and ended up insulting Fleming by saying that the Bond books were best suited for cheap TV adaptations. Insulted, Fleming angrily walked away. Enter Harry Saltzman, who was a wheeler and dealer and he landed the rights to the James Bond books. Broccoli reached out to Saltzman and a historic deal was struck with Ian Fleming. They created a new company called Eon Productions. Eon was an acronym for everything or nothing, a phrase taken directly from Ian Fleming himself. Fleming's books were selling well, but in March of 1961, the sales of the books skyrocketed thanks to a single recommendation from John F. Kennedy, who listed
Wanted from Russia with Love as one of his 10 favorite books. Kennedy and Fleming had previously met in Washington, and this publicity led Fleming to be the biggest selling crime writer in the U.S. at the time. As Fleming was writing the sequel to Thunderball, his personal life was falling apart. His marriage to Anne was on the rocks because both of them were having extramarital affairs. The demand of cranking out a new James Bond novel each year was more work than pleasure. Fleming made a creative decision with his ninth novel, The Spy Who Loved Me, and wrote the book from the perspective of a woman who is victim to an insurance scam only to be rescued by James Bond. And this novel was not as well received as his others when released. This created more stress on the chain-smoking, heavy-drinking Fleming, who one day while at work had himself a good old-fashioned heart attack. Fleming's health had been in decline for some time, and one can assume the non-stop smoking and aggressive consumption of alcohol may have offered a helping hand to this inevitable outcome. While he was recovering from his heart attack, Fleming was denied a typewriter, but a friend gave him a copy of Beatrix Potter's The Tale of Squirrel Nutkin and suggested Fleming take time to write a bedtime story that Fleming could read to his son Casper. Fleming thought this was a splendid idea and he grabbed some paper and a pen and he began work on his one and only children's novel, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Fleming recovered from his heart attack and he released the sequel to Thunderball in the novel on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which was a hit with readers and critics alike. As his prestige as an author returned, Fleming continued to work alongside Saltzman and Broccoli to produce the first James Bond feature film. The big question they had to answer was, which novel should be adapted first? Initially, Thunderball was going to be the debut Bond film, but as I mentioned earlier, that was a whole legal mess due to the screenplay authors and the lawsuits, so Broccoli and Saltzman selected Dr. No to be the inaugural James Bond movie. Dr. No is about a plot to disrupt a space launch with a radio beam weapon. Now this was almost perfect timing as there were all kinds of stories in the news about misguided rocket testing at Cape Canaveral in America. The producers offered the director's chair for Dr. No to Terrence Young who previously worked with Broccoli. And it was Terrence Young who was responsible for many of the signature stylistic elements found in the James Bond films including the use of a little humor to counterbalance the more adult themes of sex and violence. As a joke here and there made the movie more palatable for film censors. Broccoli and Saltzman originally wanted to get Cary Grant to play James Bond, but Grant said he would only agree to make one movie, and they were looking for someone to star in a franchise of films. Patrick McGowan, who at the time played John Drake on the TV show Danger Man. Well, he turned down the David Niven also initially turned down the role, but more on Mr. Niven and James Bond in episode two of this season. Reportedly, Fleming wanted actor Richard Todd to play James Bond, and you may remember him from the Disney feature film about Robin Hood. Now, producer Albert Broccoli, he was really keen on an up-and-coming actor named Roger Moore, but at the time, people felt that he might be too young or maybe a little bit too pretty. Moore later said that he was never officially approached about playing James Bond until 1973. And just a day before Dr. No hit theaters, Roger Moore debuted on the small screen in the series The Saint. Ultimately, the producers decided to go with 32-year-old Sean Connery, who signed on for five films. Now, a completely untrue story that I want to share with you now is that it was rumored that Sean Connery won the role of James Bond through a contest set up to find James Bond. The part of him winning isn't true, but the contest itself did exist. The six finalists were screen tested by Broccoli, Saltzman, and Fleming, and the winner was a 28-year-old model named Peter Anthony. <laughs> Can you imagine a 28-year-old male model being cast as James Bond? That's ridiculous. 
Reportedly, Connery initially met with Broccoli and Saltzman looking very unbond-like, all unkept and in unpressed clothes. He acted in the meeting with this macho who gives a shit attitude. At the end of the meeting, Saltzman and Broccoli watched Connery through the window as he left the meeting and returned to his car, and they knew that he was their man. The film's director, Terrence Young, took Connery to get tailored clothes, they got his hair cut. He introduced Connery to a very elegant lifestyle. Restaurants, casinos, the women of London, they all helped to educate Sean Connery in the way of being dapper, witty, and above all else, cool. Connery was cast alongside Ursula Andres as Honey Ryder, who is widely regarded as the first Bond girl ever. Now, this casting decision was made just two weeks before filming began after producers saw a picture of Andres that was taken by her then-husband and legendary creep, John Derrick. Hear all about John Derrick's creepiness in Season 6, Episode 2 of Pick 6 Movies. To play the titular Dr. No, producers selected Joseph Wiseman after considering Noel Coward, Christopher Lee, and Matt Max von Sydow, who would eventually appear as Ernst Stavro Blofeld in the unofficial James Bond movie Never Say Never Again. Dr. No established many of the characters who are staples in the James Bond films to this day. Felix Leiter, the CIA operative, was originally played by Jack Lord, an actor who was known for his work on the classic detective series Hawaii Five-0. However, this was the only time that Jack Lord portrayed this Bond mainstay in the film series. The cast included a number of actors who appeared in many of the subsequent Bond films, among them Bernard Lee, who played Bond's superior, M. Lois Maxwell plays M's secretary, Moneypenny. United Artists put up a million bucks towards the budget of the film. Not a lot of scratch at the time, but it was enough to make the movie. And in late 1961, before Dr. No was even in production, United Artists started a marketing campaign to make James Bond a well-known name in North America. Newspapers received a full set of all of the James Bond novels, as well as a booklet detailing the Bond character and a super sexy picture of Ursula Andres. Hubba hubba. Dr. No was released in the UK in October of 1962, and it made its way to North America in May of 1963. And upon release, Dr. No received a mixed bag of reviews. Time Magazine called Dr. No a blithering bounder and referred to Sean Connery as a great big hairy marshmallow who almost always manages to seem slightly silly. A review in the New Republic said the film never decides whether it's suspense or suspense spoof. The Vatican, yeah, that the Vatican, condemned Dr. No, describing it as a dangerous mixture of violence, vulgarity, sadism, and sex. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. Now, the Kremlin, yeah, that the Kremlin, said that Bond was the personification of capitalist evil. And when you got the Pope and the Soviet Union coming after you, that is a recipe for controversy, which leads to box office ka-ching ka-ching. The movie made $6 million off of a budget of $1 million, and sequels started coming out every year for the next five years. Next up for James Bond was From Russia With Love, where Bond does battle with an Irish assassin named Donald Red Grant. That's clever. Red Grant was played by a very young and incredibly fit Robert Shaw, who later in his career was eaten by a giant shark. Terrence Young returned in the director's chair, as did much of the key cast. And this movie also introduced actor Desmond Llewellyn as MI6 Quartermaster Q in a role that he would reprise for 36 years. A review of From Russia With Love in The Guardian said of the sequel that it didn't seem quite so lively, quite so fresh, or quite so rhythmically fast moving. But the reviewer went on to say that the film is highly immoral in every imaginable way. It's neither uplifting, instructive, nor life enhancing. Neither is it great filmmaking. 
but it sure is fun. And audiences agree. The movie made two million bucks more than its predecessor, so the actors, producers, and everybody in between, they kept cranking out sequels, which leads us to the subject of this episode of Pick 6 Movies, Goldfinger. Now, if this episode is about Goldfinger, why did I spend so much time talking about Dr. No? Well, that's an easy one. Dr. No was supposed to be the first episode of this season, because it's technically the first James Bond movie. Sure, Dr. No sets the table for the James Bond franchise, and then From Russia With Love invites the guest in to take a seat. But it's really Goldfinger that is the James Bond movie that served things up soup to nuts for audiences to really enjoy. Goldfinger is the James Bond movie that establishes almost everything you think of when you think of a James Bond movie. The opening title credit sequence with silhouetted female figures in an artistic erotic fashion. That started with Goldfinger. And this sexy bit of weird cinematic introductory artistry is accompanied by an unforgettable theme song, Goldfinger, as sung by Shirley Bassey, who delivered such an amazing performance that she was asked to come back and sing the theme song for Diamonds Are Forever four James Bond movies later. Goldfinger has an opening action sequence that's not directly related to the overall plot of the larger film, which is repeated in numerous Bond films. Bond first drives the Aston Martin in Goldfinger. Q introduces all kinds of crazy high-tech gadgets that 007 uses later in the movie to get out of a tight pinch. We got a supervillain with an insane supervillain scheme. Then henchman Ajab with his deadly flying bolo hat, well, he blazed the trail for future wacky henchmen, including Knickknack and Mayday and Joe and Mr. Hanks. Most importantly, we get a Bond girl with an edge who fights and then takes shit off James Bond. I'm speaking of the one and only Pussy Galore. This is the James Bond movie that establishes what we expect from a James Bond movie. And all of this was woven into a film that only vaguely resembles the plot that Fleming wrote in his seventh novel, Goldfinger. See, Fleming had a real fascination with gold and he collected Spanish doubloons and he even commissioned a gold-plated typewriter from the Royal Typewriter Company that he never used. Fleming wrote with a gold-tip ballpoint pen fancy, and he often included people stealing gold in his writings. At this point in the James Bond novels, 007 had a worldwide interconnectedness with a wide variety of characters that come into play directly or indirectly in the novel Goldfinger. Our supervillain, Auric Goldfinger, is quite the clever name, with Auric being an adjective meaning gold, to accompany the familiar titular last name of the novel, much in the same way Fleming was inspired by that book of birds by the other James Bond, the name Goldfinger was borrowed from a neighbor who lived near Fleming's Hampstead home, architect Erno Goldfinger. Fleming disliked Erno Goldfinger's style of architecture and his destruction of Victorian terraces, and he decided to name a memorable Bond villain after his neighbor. Now, Erno Goldfinger immediately went to his lawyers because I guess Fleming was loaded and this guy wanted his cut as the muse for the new book's bad guy. Fleming suggested that he would change the name to Gold Prick, but the neighbor settled out of court. I'm guessing that if everybody found out Fleming switched the name to Gold Prick, it might be more obvious that Fleming named this character after that neighbor. In the novel, Goldfinger is from Latvia and he's obsessed with gold. And Bond meets up with an American businessman named DuPont, a character from Casino Royale. 
who Bond gambled with in that novel. DuPont asks Bond to help him keep an eye on Goldfinger to see if Goldfinger is cheating when DuPont and Goldfinger play Canasta. And guess what? Goldfinger cheats. Oh, and he also smuggles gold. Bond gets put on the case to find out how Goldfinger is smuggling the gold and ends up playing golf with Goldfinger, and this time Bond cheats. Bond figures out that Goldfinger is smuggling out gold by casting panels of his Rolls Royce into gold and shipping out the cars. Solid gold Rolls Royce. Super fancy. Now, I'm only going to touch on some of the key highlights of the novel, rather than bore you with the details of the whole book. Because when Bo gets here, we're going to bore you with the details of this whole movie. But in the novel, Goldfinger is so obsessed with gold that he has yellow-bound erotic photographs in his home, and he has his lovers painted head-to-toe in gold so that he can make love to gold. Hey man, everybody's got a kink. This paint sex fetish is what kills Jill Masterson, one of Goldfinger's kept women. Now, Jill's sister, Tilly Masterson, she shows up to kill Goldfinger to avenge her sister's death. Oh, I almost forgot to mention that Tilly Masterson is a lesbian. Bond is captured by Oddjob, the Korean henchman that works for Goldfinger, and Oddjob tortures James Bond and threatens to cut him in two with a circular saw, like a magician would do, except that the saw is going to start at his taint, split him up towards his throat, until I assume James Bond stops screaming uncontrollably with his insides now outside. Bond, not wanting to die by circular saw, he just agrees to be a secretary for Goldfinger, as does Tilly Masterson when she gets captured. The evil scheme proposed by Goldfinger is called Operation Grand Slam that will involve a bunch of New York City mafia types stealing a bunch of gold from the United States Bullion Depository at Fort Knox in Kentucky. Now, among those assisting Goldfinger in Operation Grand Slam is a female mafia kingpin, or queenpin, named Pussy Galore, who is the head of the Cement Mixers, a group of female cat burglars that call Harlem their home. Pussy Galore was a juvenile delinquent from the South that became an acrobat in the circus and recruited other female acrobats to form a group called Pussy Galores, Trapeze Flyers. You didn't see that one coming, did you? A life of crime paid more than circus acrobats, so she began her rise in the world of organized crime, and she created the aforementioned Cement Mixers. Oh, I almost forgot to mention that Pussy Galore is a leader of a gang of lesbians, and Pussy Galore herself is a lesbian, who now obtains and consumes the girls she desires in bunches, like grapes. She also wears a black cat suit. Bond gets wind of Operation Grand Slam, he reaches out to his buddy at the CIA to foil the plan, which involves killing all of the soldiers at Fort Knox with a a waterborne toxin and using an atomic bomb to break into Fort Knox. Operation Grand Slam goes down. Bond and Felix sabotage the mission. Tilly, the avenging lesbian sister of dead gold-plated Jill. Well, Tilly, she gets killed by Oddjob. Goldfinger, Oddjob, the mafia bosses, and yes, Pussy Galore, they all escape by stealing Bond's Boeing Stratocruiser, and they drug James Bond and drag him along as they flee. Bond wakes up, a fight ensues. Pussy Galore suddenly sides with James Bond, who punches a window with a knife. Oddjob gets sucked out the window. Bond kills Goldfinger. In the end, Pussy Galore, who is a lesbian for the entire novel, well, she falls in love with James Bond and tells 007 that her uncle molested her when she was 12, and that's why she adopted a homosexual lifestyle. Bond says he won't report participation in Operation Grand Slam, and then James Bond and Pussy Galore, they have sex. Other than the names of those characters, almost none of what I describe actually happens in the movie Goldfinger. 
Richard Maibaum, who helped to write the first two Bond movies, well, he adapted Goldfinger for the big screen and he liberally added and removed pieces of the plot as needed to turn the novel into a movie that 1960s audiences would want to see and that they could get past censors. Mostly, they had to lose all that lesbian stuff. Maibaum also plugged the plot hole of stealing all of the gold in Fort Knox by having the villain make the gold radioactive and worthless in value. Then everybody and their brother from Saltzman to Connery, they all chimed in on how the movie should be written. Paul Den came in and he made revisions. Den worked on a bunch of those Planet of the Apes movies and Murder on the Orient Express. And the combined work of Maibaum and Den, well, they're the ones that are really credited for the blueprint of all future Bond films. The movie was filmed in Miami, Switzerland, Pinewood Studios in the UK, where many of the James Bond movies were ultimately made. Second unit work was filmed in Kentucky, and Albert Broccoli actually got permission to film at Fort Knox to capture the scenes where all of the soldiers are crop dusted with toxic gas. Terrence Young didn't return to direct due to money disputes, so Guy Hamilton stepped in to direct his first of four James Bond movies of his career. Connery was back as 007, of course. Honor Blackman was cast as Pussy Galore. Blackman was selected because of her previous work on the television series The Avengers. See Season 12, Episode 1 for more on that TV show. And the screenplay was tailored to show off Blackman's judo skills. There was some concern about the name Pussy Galore and how censors might react, and they considered changing the name to Kitty Galore. But producers Saltzman and Broccoli and director Guy Hamilton, they felt differently. Hamilton looked back on this moment in Bond history and said, If you were a 10-year-old boy and you knew what the name meant, you weren't a 10-year-old boy, you were a dirty little bitch. Now, the American censor was concerned, but we got around that by inviting him and his wife out to dinner, and we said, we're big supporters of the Republican Party. <laughs> oh, Republicans and that word pussy. They're cool with saying it, grabbing women by it. <laughs> How are they not the progressive party in the United States? With this, American censors did not make filmmakers change Pussy Galore's name in the movie, but they refused to let the name Pussy Galore appear on promotional materials, and she was referred to as Miss Galore or Goldfinger's personal pilot. To play Odd Job, filmmakers cast Olympic silver medal winning weightlifter Harold Sakata, who had no acting experience. Sakata was always down to do whatever was asked of him, which resulted in him getting burned with electricity during Ajab's death scene, where Sakata held onto his metallic hat as actual electricity ran through his body until the director said, CUT! Sakata also gave Connery a back injury during a scene where Ajab knocks Bond unconscious in Miami. This resulted in Connery negotiating 5% of the profits from this and any subsequent Bond movie that he was in. Thanks a lot, Sakata. German-born actor Gert Fruba was cast play Auric Goldfinger. Gert Fruba did not speak English all that well, and his dialogue was eventually dubbed by Michael Collins, an English actor. Fruba later remarked, I am a big man. I have a laugh to match my size. The ridiculous thing is that I play Goldfinger in the James Bond films. There are some people who still insist on seeing me as a cold, ruthless villain, a man without laughs. Consequently, Goldfinger was banned in Israel after it was revealed that Fruba was a member of the Nazi party. The ban, however, was lifted many years later when a Jewish family publicly thanked Fruba for protecting them from persecution during World War II. Well, that's nice. Promotion for Goldfinger began right when filming started. Producers let photographers take pictures of Shirley Eaton, who played Jill, with her full body painted gold from head to toe. Two Aston Martin DB5s were showcased at the 1964 New York World's Fair, and it was dubbed the most famous car in the world. And sales of the car increased. Corgi Toys began its decades-long relationship with the Bond franchise, producing toys of the Aston Martin, which became the biggest-selling toy of 1964. There were licensed 
amazing tie-ins for clothing, dress shoes, action figures, board games, jigsaw puzzles, lunch boxes, toys, record albums, trading cars, and slot cars. James Bond was everywhere. Goldfinger opened on January 9th, 1965, and it was the fastest grossing film of all time, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. The movie made back its $3 million budget in two weeks. Demand was so high that DeMille Cinema in New York City stayed open 24 hours a day showing the movie. And in its original release, Goldfinger pulled in $23 million in the U.S. and $46 million worldwide. Critics at the time of the film's release thought the movie was absurd and funny and vile, and Connery played the role with a cool, commanding air. Critics noted the humor and the gadgets, the excitement and the thrilling fights to the death. All of the things that make a James Bond movie a James Bond movie. Ian Fleming visited the set of Goldfinger in April of 1964, nine months before the film's release. At this time, Fleming's health had greatly deteriorated. That Easter, he played a round of golf in the rain. He drove home in wet clothes and developed pleurisy, which is an inflammation of tissues in the lungs and the chest. During his recovery in July of that year, his mother Evelyn passed away. Her death slowed his recovery, and in August, he suffered another heart attack on August 11th. The next morning, Ian Fleming died at the age of 56 on his son Casper's 12th birthday. Fleming's last two books, The Man with the Golden Gun and Octopussy and the Living Daylights, were published posthumously. The Man with the Golden Gun was published eight months after he died, and the novel did not go through the full editing process of his previous works. And as a result, the novel was not thought of as being up to the standards of Fleming's previous books. Fleming's biographer noted that The Man with the Golden Gun received polite and rather sad reviews, recognizing that the book had effectively been left half-finished, and as such, it did not represent Fleming at the top of his game. Octopussy and the Living Daylights were two short stories that were published in June of 1966 as well. Fleming's only story for children, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, was published in three installments from 1965 and 1966. It was later made into a memorable motion picture starring Dick Van Dyke, and by some accounts, it is the most terrifying movie in cinematic history with remarkably creepy adults kidnapping little children with the promise of free candy. Ian Fleming's son Casper and his wife Anne, they suffered a broken relationship in the years following Ian's death. It was filled with difficulties left by Ian and Anne's strained marriage, and both Anne and Casper suffered individually from depression. Casper died of a drug overdose in 1975 at age 23, and his mother Anne died six years later in 1981. Both were buried next to Fleming in the churchyard of Sevenhampton near Swindon. During his lifetime, Ian Fleming sold 30 million books. That number doubled after his death. He was ranked among the Times' 50 greatest British writers since 1945, and his influence on literature and film continued decades after his death. From Jason Bourne to Austin Powers, Jack Ryan, Indiana Jones, Ethan Hunt, and so many more all owe some, heck, if not all of their success, to the writings of Ian Fleming and the roadmap that was established in the James Bond movies, most notably the third James Bond movie, Goldfinger. Now, how did Goldfinger influence these modern-day movies? Does Goldfinger deserve to be consistently ranked among the best Bond films of all time? And how many times will we use the word pussy in this episode? To answer these questions and many, many more, let's get Bowen here as we strip naked, slather gold paint all over our bodies, and start the manliest of manly, macho, super cool seasons in the history of Pick 6 movies. Ladies and gentlemen, pussies galore, I am honored to introduce this, our 13th season's theme, Bonds. James Bonds. Boom, boom, boom. Boom.
Welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I am Chad Cooper, and I am joined by my suave, handsome, lethal, and very sexy co-host, Mr. Bo Ransdell. Bo, how are you doing today? I am fantastic. It is the the beginning of season 13. I like uh, I like the number 13. I like any numbers of the devil. I can't wait till episode 666. But oh this season, God. Chad, <laughs> is not born under a bad sign. No, it is not. It's born under a lucky sign. In fact, it's the lucky number seven, preceded by two zeros. Which adds up to seven, so that's still lucky. Seven to 13 is 20. Unless you're multiplying and then it's zero. That's not good. But if you multiply three times seven, that's 21. And 21 is blackjack. Hey, we win! (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am currently watching every single James Bond movie from beginning to end for this season. Now, it is my understanding that you have seen some of the James Bond movies, but not all of the James Bond movies. Is that correct? I have seen less than half of the James Bond movies. I've tried to start at the beginning and do what you're doing, but <laughs> but it turns out that my brain will just shut down in the movie Thunderball. It has happened on multiple occasions now where I, I start to watch that movie. Right. I, my brain just goes unconscious rather than watch that film. So about halfway through all the submarine and scuba divers of Thunderball, my body goes into an unwilling coma and I have yet to make it past uh, that. I, the, so I've seen all of the Connery movies up to Thunderball, which I think is the first three. Okay. I think, I think Thunderball is the fourth one. And then a couple of the Moore movies, a couple of the Brosnan movies, that kind of thing. But I'm not I'm not what you would call a James Bond completist. But just to make sure we're on the same page, you you watched this movie, Goldfinger, right? I yeah, yeah I've seen Goldfinger <laughs> I think three or four times now. I saw it once, I feel like when I was a kid, and I was like, oh, so that's what it was. And then <laughs> I'd, I'd heard such good things, and then it was this. And then uh, I watched it as an adult later because I was like, ah, I was a stupid kid. These movies are probably good. And then, like I said, I, I made it to Goldfinger and part of Thunderball, and I was like, I can't do these. And then for this, this show. The thing I love most about the James Bond movies is how it is just such a snapshot in time as it relates to so many different topics. And we'll really touch on this as we go through each of our selected six movies in its own unique way of how it deals with fashion and style and culture and technology and social issues and and all of these different characteristics that are specific to the era in which it was made and what was deemed appropriate on all of those different fronts or even edgy or groundbreaking on certain levels. I liken it to, you know, when you're watching Breakfast at Tiffany's and Mickey Rooney shows up Mm -hmm. and you're like, oh my God, this is worse than I ever imagined. That's how all of Goldfinger is. Really? Yeah. It is just like, oh, well, this is just all, this is a terrible character. And I, and I hate everything he says and does in this movie. Oh, you're talking about James Bond? All of them. It doesn't (laughs) matter who's on screen. It's true of any of them. Well, let's get into it proper, okay? Our movie opens and we get the signature James Bond theme from the John Barry Orchestra that was used, I do believe, in all of the Eon-produced James Bond films, starting with Dr. No in 1962. And the movie opens and we get that signature black screen with the single white circle that moves from left to right across the screen as the dot changes. And we get the final view down the barrel of a gun. And here we see James Bond. He walks out 
turns, shoots at the camera, the screen goes red, and the barrel dissolves into the circle, thus starting our movie proper. Now, Bo, I don't know if you know it or not, but the gun barrel sequence, which is, you know, iconic to every James Bond film, was actually created by Maurice Bender, who was a title designer, and he created the opening titles for the first 14 James Bond films. And they actually used a pinhole camera to shoot the sequence through the actual barrel of a gun. Huh. Yeah. The more right. you know. Ba-da-da-da. Wait. Ba-da-da-da. Hold on, hold on. Beep, ba-da-da-da. That's about as it's going to get. I think that keeps us legal if it, every other <laughs> note is different. I think the music elevates the James Bond movies way beyond what they really are. The music is easily the best part of any of these films. Mm -hmm. Kind of like Home Alone? Yeah, but Home Alone at least has that nice heartwarming scene with John Candy and Catherine O'Hara that I like. <laughs> <laughs> this just has music where he talks about leaving his kid at the funeral home you mean that heartwarming <laughs> yeah, scene right it's something i can relate to <laughs> also this kind of begins in a way that i think misleads the viewer where like a after we get the guy like pointing at the camera and stuff and then you know pew. it's not sean connery pointing the gun in this movie by the way it's actually a uh, stuntman that they hired for the filming of that opening sequence. I think I have his name here. Hold on. His name was Bob Simmons, and he appeared in the opening sequence of Dr. No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger. But when they got to the fourth Bond film, Thunderball, that you enjoy going to sleep to so much, they changed the, the movie into Panavision. And so the format was a different aspect ratio. So they had to reshoot the opening sequence, and they actually had Connery come in and do it for that movie. I like the idea that they gave Sean Connery the casting call, and he was like, I'll be goddamned. You get Bob to put on the fucking hat and point the gun at the camera. If you're not going to film my face, then my face is not going to be there. What's the fucking point? Answer me that, Mr. Broccoli, if that is your real name, you piece of vegetable piece of shit. The title sequence wraps up, and we find ourselves next to what is a drug laboratory in Latin America, and it's nighttime. And we're over by the boat docks, and these are like tiny boats, like sailboats or small fishing boats. And we see a dead seagull sitting upright, swimming along in the water as though it were still alive and moving under its own power bow. And then the seagull reaches a ladder near the dock. And then Sean Connery is James Bond. He appears out of this murky black water with his dead seagull strapped up to the top side of his diving suit. And he's wearing the most high-tech scuba gear that 1963 had to offer. And I wish the movie were more of this dumb shit. Like him wearing a seagull on his head is real stupid, but it's stupid <laughs> in a way that I like. But that's parody, right? That's like Casino Royale. Yes. But but that's the weird thing about these movies for me is that they take themselves seemingly very seriously sometimes, but also he's wearing a fucking stuffed bird on his head. And how am I <laughs> supposed to take any of this with any degree of seriousness? I think a lot of times for these movies, you really need to look at them in the context when they were made. And in the James Bond novels, there is a whole lot of writing about deep sea exploration in the Bahamas and beyond. And Ian Fleming actually became really close friends with Jacques Cousteau, uh, who's, you know, the most famous underwater explorer ever. And Cousteau was one of the two men who invented the Aqualung in the 40s that ultimately led to, you know, what we know as scuba gear. And so in the James Bond novels and movies, there's constantly this push to, you know, you see a lot of underwater exploration as well as 
embracing new technology, real or imagined. And a lot of times this made up technology in James Bond found its way into the real world, which is interesting to see sort of how one influences the other. Do you think at some point Jacques Cousteau was like, Ian, when James Bond goes into the Brine Depths, make sure he has a stupid beard on his head. It will make a good disguise. <laughs> what a terribly, terribly dumb idea. Yes, they will never suspect this dead bird resting on Sean Connery's head is a disguise. This is good shit. So tell me, what is the name of your next book? It's actually called Everything or Nothing. I just came up with that right now. It's called Octopussy, old boy. I got the idea when we were swimming and saw that octopus and I thought, maybe we should fuck it. Yes, we should have. It is one of my last great regrets. We should have captured that squid and brought it on board and wined and dined with it. Tasted the nautical pleasures only a tentacle can bring. Something like that, Chad, is probably how it went. <laughs> James Bond, he climbs out of the water, loses the dead bird, and uh, he pulls a <laughs> grappling gun out of somewhere, and he fires it up over the wall of this fortress, and then Bond climbs up a rope, he's over the wall, he lands on the ground, he knocks out an unsuspecting security guard, then Bond runs over to one of these mini 50 foot-tall cylindrical containers on the property. He reaches behind this oversized valve, hits a button or pulls a lever, air, like maybe he rubs its tummy, and then a, a hidden panel on the side of this container swings open and Bond dashes inside. But we've already got a disguise, grappling guns, knocking out unconscious security guards, secret hidden doors. Bo, this is a nice start to a James Bond movie. Yeah, inside is, you know, Brian Cranston looking for a fly... What are you doing here? Bond flips on a light switch once he's inside this big metal container and he finds himself in a science lab that's almost a postmodern FTD flower store. And there's all this long stem flora and fauna all over the place and there's beakers and vials on the table. And then off to one side, there are these large red barrels laying on their side that are marked in big black letters, nitro. It's nitromethane. That's doubly explosive. Bo. Yes. This is not... How you store nitro? Oh, God. <laughs> I'd almost forgotten that that was a movie. Vaughn pulls out this big thing of gogurt and he squirts <laughs> this gooey white gunk across the tops of these red barrels. Yeah, it's a real. <laughs> it really made me laugh like again the whole front end of this had me giggling which was good but it's all stu- super dumb but it's interesting because if you go back and you watch dr no which you can really see the movie trying to figure things out and then when you get to from russia with love that feels more like a hitchcock movie kind of it plays up the suspense and the you know the tension or whatever this is really the movie that just figures it all out as i mentioned in the intro it creates the blueprint and having this this goofball opening that doesn't relate to anything else you see that in so many other movies so once he squeezes out this like toothpaste of Mm -hmm. explosives he sets the charge and then just fucks off dude 
This bomb has a little clock, and it's powered by a 9-volt battery. <laughs> yeah, like a good old-fashioned Rayovac with the electric-looking cat on it. How do you think you disarmed that bomb, Bo? Yeah, well, you know, James Bond, not what you would call a bomb technician, as we will see later in this movie. <laughs> when he might as well flop at one. Uh, Dude, when I was five years old, my grandfather was digging through a box of just random shit in his house, and he pulled out a 9-volt battery, and he told me to lick the top of it. Mm-hmm. And so, as a child trusting an adult, I did it, and I was immediately shocked by the current. And then I'm standing there, you know, like, freaked out. I was like, why did you tell me to do that? And he was like, uh, I wanted to find out if it was dead or not. <laughs> That's good thinking. Look, you were young. You were easily replaced at that point. (laughs) Like, no one had gotten that attached. That's how I look at most kids. I'm like, look, until you're 10, you're kind of on a trial basis as a person. Bond leaves the place, and he heads over to the wall from whence he came, goes back over the wall, jumps down near the corpse of this dead seagull, and he removes this black outer layer like his uh his diving suit and underneath he is wearing a full white tuxedo with a tight black bow tie and he then pulls a red carnation out and sticks it in his lapel but this is one of the many reasons i love the james bond movies I mean, so somebody's gotta. They've made twenty five of them. I, I'm not right. the only one. I know you're like I know I'm in the minority <laughs> on this. But uh, here's the thing: like when you do your your introduction about Ian Fleming, Ian Fleming in my mind is one of mankind's great assholes who just kind of failed upward. You know, I tried to read the Bond books, and I don't think they're particularly well written. They're not, I mean, they're not for me. There there are people who read Tom Clancy books, and those aren't for me either. It's just a, a world I don't care about. And as such, when you get into this stuff of like, oh, look, I just set some explosives, and now I'm wearing a tuxedo. I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. Uh, like none, I don't find this stuff exciting. And so when he he then goes to this, you know, party that's happening outside a bar or just nah, in a bar. It's the El Scorpio nightclub. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> and there's some like Castilian belly dancer happening that's wooing the locals. Did you like his wig? Is he wearing a piece at this point? Dude, he started losing his hair in his 20s, and by the time he got this role, he was in his early 30s, so he wore hair pieces from, for, in every James Bond movie, and in uh, You Only Live Twice, James Bond in that movie, they fake his death, and he goes undercover as a Japanese man, so they put these prosthetics and big eyebrows on him, and then they give him this wig that look, makes him look like Lloyd Christmas, and he in the movie, man, he looks more like George Clooney in From Dust Till Dawn than he does like an Asian man, but there's one... One moment in the movie where he dives underwater with his like token female partner and his hair just sort of wisps in the water as he swims and his receding hairline is a good 40% of the way back off of his, his, his natural hairline. God bless him. Just recently, prior to this recording, it was announced that he had just turned 90. Sean Connery, still alive, still with us, 90 years old, hadn't, hadn't really been seen in public much. And rightfully so. I mean, the man is just an unwrapped mummy at this point, at the age of 90. And nobody wants to see James Bond, you know, coming out like, oh, where's money, Penny? You know, like, oh, God, sit down, old man. It's like that last Burt Reynolds movie that he made. What was it called? The the last movie star. And they just kind of wheeled around a skeleton. and Right. 
like yeah. it's doing the Gene Hackman of like I'm gonna retire with some class and dignity and retire when I'm on top and you don't have to prop me up on a stool to say some lines. Yeah. Anyway, back to this movie. So like after he unzips his suit and shows up at the at the El Scorpio bar or whatever, and he's just staring at the tits of this belly dancer, lighting up a smoke, which God bless him for that one. You say that as though that's what you're not supposed to do with a belly dancer. Again, man, it's just one of these things where I'm like, I don't like the character of James Bond. And so there's nothing in this movie for me to hang on to. (laughs) And so watching it, I'm like, okay, so... At this point, like, he just triggers this explosion, right? Like, uh, in the distance, there's this big boom. Yeah, well, he had it on a timer, and he's watch- He's looking at his watch, and he right, lights a cigarette, right. and he looks really cool while he's smoking, except for the part where he's getting cancer. That's not cool. That Don't is smoke. not, yeah, that's not cool, but also, <laughs> as a when, former smoker, holy shit, looks great. Everybody in this bar freaks out, man. When this shit blows up, they just run off, and Bond stays at the bar, and there's a guy there who's an associate, and he's like, congratulations, Mr. Bond, Mr. Ramirez and his friends, they will be out of business, and Bond says, ha at least they won't be using heroin-flavored bananas to finance revolutions. Which I thought, are heroin-flavored bananas a real thing? It well, it just goes to prove there's always money in the banana stand, Chad. Is banana-flavored heroin a, a thing? If it were, I would be strung out almost all the time. I love a good banana-flavored candy. Really? See, I love bananas, but I don't like anything that's banana-flavored. I like banana bread. I like banana nut crunch. Like bananas by themselves, like banana runts. Uh, you give me anything vaguely banana flavored, I'm I'm down for it. Did you like that Tony Danza, Danny DeVito orangutan movie called Going Bananas? I don't think you have to ask me that, Chad. <laughs> I mean, you heard the description when you said it, didn't you? But yeah, when he's going on about heroin flavored bananas, the dude's like, hey, there's a plane leaving for Miami in an hour and you need to be on it. Isn't that true of most airports? If you go anywhere in the world, yeah, there's a plane leaving for Miami in about an hour. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But I guess in this little shithole town in the middle of nowhere, South America. Hi, welcome to McDonald's. Oh, yeah, you guys have Big Macs? Yeah? Hmm, interesting. But when this guy's like, hey, you need to get to the airport so you can get out of this country after, you know, blowing up this drug lab. Ha! I'll be on it. But first, I've got some unfinished business to attend to. So he's just like, before I do that, it's time to get some fucking in. So he shows up at the belly dancers, who's in the tub, but she's gets out for a smooch as soon as Bond shows up. He throws her a towel, and he takes off his tuxedo jacket, and then she gets poked in her bony ribs with his gun that's in his shoulder holster, and she's like, oh! She's like, why do you carry that thing? And then Bond says, because I have an inferiority complex. Let's start kissing before I start grabbing you by the whatever. I'm implying I've got a small wiener, but... It's just a trick. Look, when I see a woman like you, I'm automatically attracted to them. I just grab them and start kissing. I'm like a magnet. I just kiss. I don't even wait. When you're a star like me, that's what they let you do. You can do anything. You can grab them by the pussy. Anything you want. I'm James Bond. I'm surprised that he did not begin his wooing with, before we begin, let me ask you, do you know a guy named Goldfinger? Because if you fucked him, the deal's off. I mean, all, this guy does not want to be Eskimo brothers with nobody. These two are smooching. Yeah. And the woman peeks. She kind of opens her eye and looks across the way. And there's some hired goon who sneaks out from behind a shiffer robe. And Bo, you can tell it's a shiffer robe because it has space on top for hanging clothes as well as drawers for folding clothes. Yeah. And you know, it's the 60s because he's got a sap. 
Dude, he's going to go over and clock Bond in the head with it. And the belly dancer, in her eye, James Bond, sees the reflection of the goon. And he whips around and pulls this belly dancer in the way of the head clocking that I just mentioned. And she takes it on the noggin. Yeah. It's pretty good. And then, uh, as often happens in these Bond movies of the Connery era, just some good old-fashioned wrestling ensues. Chairs are broken across backs. Vases are tossed. It's a real, oh my god! Oh, the thug came off the top rope! That can't be legal! Where is the ref? It's some real 1960s choreographed white guy fighting. At one point, it almost becomes a Three Stooges routine when Bond grabs the goon's foot and starts to twist it in a 360 degree fashion. And then the goon face palms James Bond. Yeah, it's the old atomic leg grip into the face smush. (laughs) And then the guy ends up getting shoved in the bathtub. He goes for Bond's gun and Bond, thinking on his quick Bond toes, throws an electric fan into the tub. Electric cuting the guy and then of course james bond says shocking and fuck you if you enjoy that because that is crypt keeper level punnery at work gold finger he's the man with the minus touch yeah and at this point it's just like here's some naked ladies fellas and also you get to see some shots of the movie superimposed over these ladies in bikinis so i guess if anyone wants to crank it in the theater for a second now's your chance now look you know me i hate opening credits for any movie yes i think it's a huge waste of time but at least here you're kind of seeing naked ladies and silhouetted naked ladies and it is visually intriguing at least from an artistic standpoint you know yeah just like the pictorials of playboy are the most artistic of of photos wait till episode two you're gonna love those credits i think it's fascinating how you see james bond influencing other forms of media as well specifically the james bond movies because if you look at the uh tux that james bond is wearing in this film it is the exact same tux that was worn in temple of doom they're dressed almost identical and and if and if that was a, a happy accident i would be shocked by that and in fact supposedly george lucas said in an interview uh steven was telling me he really wanted to do a a james bond film and that he actually uh, went to the people who own james bond and um uh, they said that he could direct one and uh they turned him down so i said look steven i i've got a a james bond film you could do it's great it's like james bond but even better it's called uh rad vaders of the jar jar binks and the main character is uh, indiana smith and he's a high school geology teacher that works part-time at a diner in a bustling metropolis in turn of the century 1800s where the sport of kings involves high-speed races on rudimentary pogo sticks all steady get it's a, a backdrop of political intrigue involving intercontinental uh, trade tariffs if you want to make it steven let me bring lawrence kasdan in to punch that up and then maybe we got something i like the fact that they turned him down he's like yeah i'd really like to make a james bond movie and they were like no we saw et you're not getting anywhere near this you know what's interesting is that up until sam mendez took over the James Bond series, the majority of the people that directed James Bond films were either part of the Saltzman Broccoli family, that they really didn't invite a lot of other people to come in and sort of take their turn at making one of these movies like you saw with the Mission Impossible series, where you had, you know, De Palma, and then you had Wu, and then you had J.J. Abrams, and I'm trying to think who else came into that series later on. But it's really interesting to be able to sort of take that source material and then reimagine it through the filtered lens of an individual director's own creative vision. 
I think that the Bond movies would have benefited from that if you tied the uh, like a good director to them, as opposed to just like, here's a formula and it's going to be more of the same. Look, they had a formula, as, as we've discussed already in this episode, Goldfinger is very much the template for a bunch of these Bond movies. And, and as such, they all feel very samey and... And the, even the action sequences, which were kind of the highlight, I think, of the Brosnan ones, are still in service of the same formula. But but let me ask you this. Have you met anyone who lives outside of your house? Because people don't like things that are different. Do you remember when that third Alien movie came out and everybody was just like, what in the holy hell is this? This right. isn't what I paid for. I want you to do the other thing, but in a completely different way that's completely original, but it's also the exact same. Go do that. But you also run the risk of what happened with Bond right which is eventually that is going to become stagnant you know that's going to become a formula that no longer satisfies because we've seen it too many times and you know look at some point marvel is going to have the same dark realization at like so at, at a certain point the audience will move on i think that with bond one of the things that's so interesting about it is that you almost hit the reset button every time the characters recast and it's an opportunity to do it different enough but without completely starting over from whole cloth yeah and i think the recent ones at least have the benefit of of truly having like a good director like sam mendez at, at the helm even though i've only seen one and a half of those or, or i've seen two of them but i only remember one and a half i couldn't tell you exactly what happened on the back end of quantum of solace other than i didn't care let's go to miami beach and we know it's miami beach because we see a plane pulling a banner that says welcome to miami beach right will smith is rapping in the background welcome to to Miami. Who commissioned this banner and put the money to have it flown around? Like the local tourism board? Yeah, Miami Dade County Chamber of Commerce. Had a little extra money in the budget. I mean, this is the roaring 60s after all. We've, we're still riding high on po post-war war chests. Maybe it's just a local pilot that's got a lot of pride in his hometown, you know? He's proud of his town, Bo. That's a damn rare thing these days. Yeah. And the FAA <laughs> just knows him as the crank who never lets anyone know that he's in the airspace. A helicopter films as we close in on this luxurious 1960s Miami Beach resort hotel. And this hotel has like an Olympic-sized swimming pool. There is a diving board tower with three platform levels it's a real triple lindy operation we're seeing here we see this one guy he jumps off the top level and he splooshes down into the pool and i remember going to the public pool when i was a kid bo mm -hmm. uh, with my tongue still stinging from licking batteries with my grandpa mm -hmm. here's a fun fact for you bo when i was very young my father uh, who worked in public education his whole life um he would manage the local public pool over the summers to help uh, make ends meet so instead of having a babysitter in the summer when I was young, I mostly just hung out at public pools where I learned how to roll joints and remove broken beer bottle glass from someone's foot. Oh, and I, you know something else I learned? I learned the official way to perform the unsanctioned dive known as the nutcracker, which involves wearing cutoff denim shorts, uh, bouncing off of the high dive, spreading your legs while holding your dick with both of your hands, uh, screaming a profanity, and judges actually award you a few extra points if they can tell that the diver is visibly intoxicated the russian judges score that high and the german judge 3.2 what is up with the germans they're just they don't like the dive they don't like it 
Suck on this! Kersploosh. Having a bunch of assholes doing the nutcracker <laughs> off the eye dive. Down below, it turns out there's a viewing area for perverts to crank it to the ladies in bikinis. Could you imagine getting into a swimming pool where there's an v- underwater viewing area? Right! <laughs> this is the kind of pool you have to sign a waiver before you dive off a, a, off the diving board. <laughs> Like, look, you you might get photographed <laughs> by a weirdo in the tunnel. Here we get to see recurring character, American CIA operative and friend of James Bond, Felix Leiter. And he's crossing this crowded pool deck in a three-piece gray suit. And he's wearing a hat. How he's not sweating like Ted Stryker landing a jumbo jet is beyond my understanding. And Felix walks over and sees James Bond laying on his belly getting a massage from a woman named Dink. Who's this sexy blonde in a blue bikini? I don't think it's her job to give out massages. I think she just sat down and started rubbing on james bond she's a freelance masseuse lighter don't you have them here in america clearly you do it just happened in miami checking mate lighter james bond rolls over and he says ha felix it's good to see you felix this is dink dink say goodbye to felix and then dink rightfully so just looks confused at james bond and then james bond says man talk and he smacks her on the ass forcing her out of the movie i fucking hate this movie anyway it is so, so fantastic and it like this is <laughs> along with the title sequence it's just like sophomoric male bullshit is just this movie cover to cover and it's just something that i i despise in movies it's one of the reasons i hate armageddon and the rock and shit like that so much just a bunch of testosterone fueled grab assery but those movies were made at a different time this was during the era of the rat pack this was during the era of you know playboy magazine doing its thing you look you don't see daniel craig pulling this shit in his movies he's not coming over to dame judy ditch slapping her on the ass and saying beat it sweet tits we got man talk to handle by the same token song of the south was a big movie during this era and it's just been buried by disney because they're like fuck we can't remind people that we did this shit and it amazes me that this this kind of movie is still held in high regard because it is so just great grossly stupidly masculine i'm not saying it is a good movie in fact the just the the point that it's on our podcast tells us that it ain't the high standards okay i'm saying as a moment in time and watching it this is fantastic could you even imagine a movie today where a guy told a woman beat it man talk smack on the ass just to punctuate the sentence it's it's like this is insane that this was socially appropriate in a motion picture Sure, but like I said, it's the Mickey Rooney scene from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Now, that's just a white guy dressed up screaming out, you know. For me, there's not a significant difference between watching a a white guy being racist and watching a white guy being so grossly misogynist that I'm just like, I think it's it's just a deplorable quality in your your character. And when that character is your main character, Mm -hmm. then immediately I'm just like, well, I just hope he dies in this movie. Like in any other film, he would be the villain. How do you go to sleep at night being so woke? It's not being woke. It's just a guy engaging a growth. He is doing Cosby level. Like gross behavior. It's I don't feel like I'm a crazy person for thinking that telling a woman man talk baby and smacking her on the ass to get out of the room is just gross (laughs) behavior. It is awful and it's fantastic. 
So, but Felix says, hey, I was talking to him because apparently we chat sometimes <laughs> or whatever. Like, I don't know why he's the go-between here. That doesn't make no sense. But he's like, uh, yeah, M, your boss, wants you to check on this guy named Arik Goldfinger. Arik Goldfinger. Hmm, sounds like a real asshole. Yeah, it sounds like his name is Gold Goldfinger. That's the stupidest <laughs> fucking thing I've ever heard. And it is. It's really stupid. And then this dude, he's like, Goldfinger seems clean as far as the CIA is concerned, but we need you to check him out. And Bono's like, well, so where is this guy? And Felix is like, oh, he's here at the resort right now. And of course, wearing a gold shirt because there is nothing subtle about a James Bond movie ever. He's got a matching gold shirt and he has gold shoes and he's got blonde hair. You're right, golden hair. It's just so stupid. Felix is like, yeah, so he's been hustling this dude over here. Yeah, Simmons. At Jen, like uh, Harry the Hat did coach on Cheers. Did you ever see that? That's about 20 times more entertaining than this. Bond, of course, is like, no, that show hasn't been invented yet. But I think I know how to bust this guy at cards. So Goldfinger is about to sit down and, and has have his card game. But he's like, look, I need to be in the seat that you're in. And the, the guy's like, what? You need to be in this seat? Get out of my seat. It provides me with such luck to increase the already high earnings of $10,000 that I have won from you without cheating in any way. And because this guy is just an completely deplorable gambler. Ah, sure thing, Goldfinger. Yeah, hey, whatever you want, Goldfinger. You know, you and that tan of yours. Let's double the stakes. My luck's got to change sometime, right, Goldfinger? What do you think, Goldfinger? Huh? Sunk cost. Schmunk cost. That's what I say, Goldfinger. But he doubles the stakes to $5 a point, which means they were two fifty dollars a point before. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why you would do an uneven point amount. Like, just make it a dollar a point. Or $2 a point, but not two fifty. Why are you doing fractions? It's a minor complaint. <laughs> but Bond is hanging out just nearby, and he's just like, show, I wonder what these assholes are saying. And he overhears that Goldfinger's winning. You know, it's another one of those, you win again, Goldfinger. Goldfinger has also stuck a small receiver in his ear that is very conspicuously going down to a small, what appears to be either radio or hearing aid device. I would err more on the side of radio yeah. because that's how he's cheating. So Bond then uh, goes into the hotel and immediately assaults a housekeeper by just grabbing her and using her keys that are attached to her to open up the door to Goldfinger's suite. Did you like that sweet blue terry cloth onesie from the Zap Brannigan collection of men's pool dresses that he puts on before he goes upstairs? <laughs> that is maybe the most comfortable looking outfit I've seen in some time. It's like uh, those people who, who uh, want to dress up like adult babies and shit. It's that kind of thing. <laughs> It looks it looks super comfortable, though, and it also looks like he might be wearing a diaper underneath it. What can I share? I like the feeling of helplessness. He grabs her keys and opens the, the door to Goldfinger Suite, and inside is a hot blonde in a bikini on a terrace, because, again, this is a Bond movie, and of course there is. And she is feeding Goldfinger the other guy's cards via binoculars and, and this microphone that she's feeding into, you know, his giant size hearing aid. Right. It's Jill Masterson, one of Goldfinger's kept women or of sorts yeah and uh bond walks over and he turns off the box that jill masterson is using to help goldfinger cheat and jill masterson turns around naturally surprised to see this stranger in her hotel room and she says who are you and he says bond james bond Wait, why give your real name how about this fuck you that's my name but it, that's the thing right it's not his real name because they all assume the name james bond when they become 007 
who cares? But that was always my tentative understanding of this. But Uh, Ian Fleming wrote a series of books and there was a character, James Bond. And then that was it. And then you're just reinterpreting. So I don't know that they're passing the mantle from person to person. But again, I haven't seen enough of these movies. That was the mythology I created for myself to, I guess, try to make sense of it. But also, clearly, I don't care because I don't watch those movies. <laughs> but at a certain point, Sean Connery just starts grilling her about, like, is she paying you uh, to help him cheat? What's she paying you? And if so, what are those payments for? Follow-up questions. If I outbid him, will you do the same for me, Miss Jill Masterson? <laughs> He's like, so is he just paying you to be seen or is there something more? And she's like, no, just to be seen. He's like, good, because I'm not going to be Eskimo brothers with that fat fuck. I'm not going to be sloppy seconds, all right? I like my women one way, virginal, in all their holes. There's one thing that's true of a fat man. The bigger the cushion, the deeper the pushing. It's true. <laughs> So one thing I've learned in my time in the Secret Service, or whatever I'm in. Bond turns the machine back on, and he says, Listen up, Goldfinger. Your luck just turned. Lose $15,000 to this guy, or I'm going to call the Miami police to have him arrest you. And then Goldfinger, he grimaces, and then he loses the game to Simmons. And Simmons like, hooray, my luck turned. See you later, Goldfinger. And then Goldfinger's so mad, Bo, he breaks a pencil in two. Not since Reanimator has the breaking of a pencil been so dramatic. Mr. West, perhaps you could use a pen. Chill Masterson says, hmm, I'm beginning to like you, James Bond. And then Bond says, yes, let you and I have dinner in my bedroom right now. And then we'll have sex in the bed of the bedroom. Dirty, loud, unprotected hotel sex. That's the best kind there is, Miss Masterson. Of course, they uh, eat and fuck their way through the evening. The phone rings and it's uh, Felix Leiter who wants to meet while uh, Jill is trying to distract Bond in bed. And then finally he's like, listen, Jill, I've got to go. Something big came up. And this time it's not my dick. You get it? You get it? He hangs up the phone and he rolls over for another episode of Jill Masterson presents her vagina. And then Bond's like, hey, we're out to champagne. Hold on a moment. Let me grab another bottle. And as he's walking across the room, he says, drinking Dom Perignon 53 above 38 degrees Fahrenheit. It's as bad as listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. Dude, he refers to this champagne as passion juice (laughs) in much the way in the same way that like your michael jackson's had their jesus juices and whatnot he might as well call it the fast four to sex juice there's a lot of moms out there getting drunk during the pandemic that refer to wine as mommy juice (laughs) just so that their kids don't think they're alcoholics hey moms they secretly know you're an alcoholic also hey wendy But then he gets, uh, as he's going for the champagne, he gets knocked out by the shadow of Oddjob. I mean, actually Oddjob, but you just see the shadow of Oddjob. Yeah, it's a silhouette of a fat man in a bowler hat. <laughs> right. It's a karate chop! And down he goes. And then when he wakes up, he finds Jill Masterson on the bed. And this is the kind of classic Goldfinger moment, I think, where on the bed is this girl completely covered in gold paint. Let me ask you a question real quick. Do you think when he saw her, he was like, oh, Jimmy, you done it again. You got to lay off the sauce. This is just like that time in Tijuana when you woke up with your cock in one hole and your fist in another. But worse, because you don't remember any of the late night fun. And then he's like, oh, shit, she's dead and covered in paint. I'm probably the most likely suspect. She's definitely got my semen in her and on her. Oh, Jimmy, you done it again. When he calls lighter, it's just like, listen, Felix, 
I did it again. This one's covered in paint. I can't explain it, but I'm gonna need you to grab those garbage bags and that hacksaw. Don't worry, I've already got her in the in the tub. You got dinks up to your bedroom and painted no, her- No, no, I can see where you'd be confused. Not dink. No, this is another one. I don't know what happened to Dink, but thanks for reminding me. You should probably give her a ring and check on her. Who knows what I did after I did the number on this little bird. I met a black man down by the observation window. He sold me a bag of pills and I took them all. By the way, I just looked at the newspaper and apparently it's next week. Listen, Felix, this is bat country. (laughs) We're all on a survival trip now, Felix. I've been watching the carpet for the past 45 minutes. I meant to call you earlier, but I just couldn't get there. Felix, let me ask you a question. How many toes do you have, and how many should I have? Also, should any of them be, I guess you would say, loose? I got a sack full of loose toes, Felix. (laughs) And I gotta be honest, I'm starting to feel a little nervous about it. Felix, could you do me a favor? Could you give him a call and ask them if they've ever revoked that license to kill? Because I've got a feeling I've taken this in a direction that no one's seen before. Is there a season limit? I know you're close with him, Felix. Just ask him if there's a high number. If, say, I go over 20, do I have to take a week off? That's 20 a day, by the way, Felix. Not in a week or a month, a day. Yes, yes, I know that means that's more than one waking hour. I'm a busy man, Felix. Also, I've been taking a lot of pills. Did I mention I met a black man down near the observation room near the the swimming pool? Have we had this conversation? Are you even here? Are you invisible? Felix! Yeah, it turns out that Felix is the Brad Pitt to his Ed Norton. He's just the... (laughs) Felix is just the part of his id that he he talks to when things get hairy. He's not even a spy. Right. Felix, you're going back to the farm, are you? By which I mean my subconscious... But anyway, so we go back to London where Bond is telling him, like, it's the goddamnedest thing, him. She was covered in paint. She died of skin suffocation. Yeah. Listen, it's this made-up condition that I just invented, that when you cover a broad in paint, it happens to strippers and dedicated cosplay enthusiasts and Cirque du Soleil performers and those idiots that participate in those charity color runs where they blast you with paint while you jog around like a goddamn fool. Well, you get all that paint on you and it kills you, him. That's how she died. Emma immediately is like, I'm familiar, 007, but remember, this is not personal. Personal? He says this isn't a personal vendetta. Bond just met this woman. Right. It's sad that she's dead, you know, and that he's the prime suspect, but vendetta? Em tells him, like, we barely got you back with that the Miami Police Department pressing charges, Bond. Not for what you would think, but for all the things you did with the ladies. Also, Goldfinger has taken off for Europe. Bond's like... Listen, I'll be professional if I know what the goddamn assignment is, Em. And Em is like, all right, Bond, meet me here at 7 o'clock. And it's black tie, James. We have a dinner date to discuss the plot of this movie. Call it a uh, dinner with exposition, if you will. Outside, there's a little to do with James Bond and Money Penny, who is the secretary. I love the relationship between James Bond and Money Penny. I think that it is this, it's not really sexual tension, but they both sort of play their part in this dance that she teases Bond about his sexual proclivity and Bond kind of turns down the charm to play along with her. I also like in this scene where Money Penny takes his hat and tosses it onto the hat rack because that's sort of a signature thing that, that at least through the Connery films that he always did when he walked in. It's kind of a, a playful turn of events. 
Yeah, I always found Money Penny to be a little sad. I think that, you know, she's this older woman that clearly James Bond would never take to bed. But they have this little dance they do, and it's sort of his acknowledgement that, like, yeah, I bet you were pretty hot once upon a time. And her acknowledgement that, like, I know this is a ruse and that you could, you're could, you not the kind of man who could ever love me. But quite frankly, I've never found that man, clearly. So once I leave here tonight, I'm just going to go home. I'm going to feed my cats, and then I'm going to listen to the radio and think about this conversation and probably jill myself to bed you know in these early james bond movies i give them credit for casting honor blackman or shirley eaton in these films because i don't know how old honor blackman was in this movie but she certainly looks older than any other actress to be cast in a james bond film like she's in her maybe what her 30s she i think she was in her mid-30s when she did this yeah so i mean at least money penny even though she may look a little bit older in the early james bond films money penny doesn't look too much older or younger than a lot of the women that james bond has sex with Oh, I take all all commas, you know what I'm saying? Commas? Huh? So the dinner they're they're gonna have that night is with an old fart from the Bank of England. His name's Smithers, and they're in like in this haunted castle, or yeah. museum or something. And it, it's him and M and Bond, and it is just the exposition of the movie. And and the long and short of it, as as best as I can tell, is that uh, they talk about how gold is the standard on which the dollar and the pound are the uh, are based, and that Goldfinger is kind of a legitimate businessman who might be using a metal metallurgical installation which he is legally allowed to have in kent to smuggle gold out of the country and sell it at a profit in other markets you see here Stephen, i um, mean goldfinger uh they were really dealing with the currency exchange rates it's not so uncommon that you would envision having a james bond type who are the the main plot would be dealing with tariff disputes across different nations and looking at how they could potentially impact their economies both domestically and, glo- and globally that is a real good analog to how I feel about this scene of like, oh, it's a trade dispute. <laughs> but that's not the real plot. He's got a better plot. It's just, it, it starts convoluted and it starts about the gold standard and shit. And already I'm just like, I don't care about any of this. I just don't care about exchange <laughs> rates. I don't care about gold smuggling. All of this bores me to tears. Bond says, ha ha, I think it's time for me to meet this gold finger, but I need some bait. Maybe a big bar of gold will do and m says look just go talk to q bond he'll get you a big bar of gold if that's what you need so they go to the q branch is how it's referred to and bond uh passes by someone testing this uh gas like a parking meter uh, that shoots out gas or something and there's a bulletproof overcoat. I love this moment in the Bond films when he meets Q. Every film. Because there's always this sort of foreground, background contrast you know, of what's going on of just crazy gadgets. And when you think about spy movies or, you know, espionage, this is really what you want. Like, what kind of insane wacky shit are they doing? You know, for me as a kid, it was like what I envisioned if I were to go to the, the Mad Magazine headquarters, that it would just be fucking bonkers. You know, if you were to go to where james bond's gadgets were invented it would be full of all types of wackadoodle nonsense which is what they show you 
Yeah, I would love to see a movie that is just the guys who work in this department go getting a wacky adventure or something. That'd be good. Yeah, because the way that it always plays out in these movies is that you introduce all this stuff, and more often than not, and particularly in this film, like, you kind of blow your wad on that in one scene, and then it's like, ah, he's got this little tracker thing that comes into play throughout the film, but that's sort of it. You also have to remember, though, in the first two movies, they didn't really do anything like this at all. Q only shows up in From Russia with Love, and he is not given this type of unconventional technology to help him get out of all of his scrapes throughout the film. Sure, but I still got to watch this movie. <laughs> If you did the movie you're suggesting, this uh, Grindel to Goldfinger's Beowulf, uh-huh. the one thing I would ask is that you can't have the two and or three knuckleheads who work in the Q branch, you can't have them become accidental spies. Like, I think it should be more of a story about one of them slowly dying of cancer. <laughs> the My Life of James Bond movies, where <laughs> it's just him, like, pouring himself into his work, but at the same time recording videos for his unborn child. This is this is what I did, Jeff. We decided to name you Jeffrey. Yes, I, I supported one of the greatest spies and honestly one of the biggest rapists in Europe. Here's an invention I came up with. It was a tiny umbrella that you could hide inside your asshole. It didn't work well because of... Oh! Hey, here's another one that was... Uh, it looks like a, an ordinary tube of lipstick, but it turns out if you take off the cap and press this button, it fires out a corrosive mist that will erase the bodies of sexual assault victims. I, uh, Jeff, I also came up with this unbreakable pencil. Uh, when we put it in the field, a guy named Goldfinger uh, broke it in two immediately. I, I almost got fired that day, Jeff. And uh, that was also the day I found out that I had stage four pancreatic cancer. That was a real tough day, Jeff. Jeff, I'm not going to lie. Now, looking back now, I realize that my life has been a series of either failed experiments or successful ones that helped a sexual predator achieve his ends. And honestly, I think maybe I earned this cancer. What I'm saying to you, Jeff, is I need you to not be my next failed experiment, nor do I need you to go on to help a serial rapist commit his terrible, terrible crimes. I'm going to give you the name of a close friend of mine. His name is Jeffrey Epstein. I want you to reach out to him after my death and follow his every word to the letter, Jeff. Every word. And now I'm going to get on a roller coaster and fade to white. And that is the movie My Life, as told by Big Six Movies. But so Q is like, hey, here's this Aston Martin. It's bulletproof, and it's got a plate on the back that's bulletproof, too. There's uh, the license plate spin so that if you're in a different country, you can use the license plate of that country. It's got a homing. Oil slick. Oil slick. It's basically every weapon from the Spy Hunter game. Which ripped this off. That's where they got it all, Bo. Well, of course, except uh, that one didn't have an ejector seat, which is pretty handy. I love it whenever Q meets Bond. He's not taking any of his shit. I also like that he always says, pay attention, please. Like, you you simpleton. Right. (laughs) Well, because because Bond is not very smart, Uh, at least not in this film. (laughs) you know he just kind of stumbles his way through the movie for the most part he does also get a tracking device that's a little chip that he can either put in his shoe or wrap up in a napkin that's going to get lost eventually or something (laughs) which also ultimately does not work or or help anyone so you know well done the one moment i do like from this is is when he's like and you know there's don't hit this button because it's an ejector seat and then bond is like you can't be serious you're saying i could pick up a lady of the night have her get in my car promise her money 
for favors. Have her perform those favors, and then hit this button, blast her out into the sky, and drive away cackling? <laughs> Q, you're brilliant. Q, let me ask you this question. Have you ever played Grand Theft Auto Five? Huh? <laughs> Have you ever picked up a prostitute, had sex with them, and then murdered them and taken your money back? I'm going to do that for realsies. And it's going to all be legal, Q. I've got a license to kill. I've also got a license to have sex with <laughs> prostitutes. I printed it myself at Kinko's. And you've just given me the greatest tool in my toolbox. This ejector seat. You're a goddamn genius, Q. Do you know how <laughs> easy it makes me to dispose of the women that I'm eventually going to have sex with and kill? Could you find a way to go into the boot of my car and put a body disposer in there? Perhaps some sort of wood chipper affair. <laughs> Can we somehow convert the bodies of my kills into fuel? It's just something for you and the boys to work on. You don't have to say yes today. By the way, how's Roger doing? And his son, Jeff? When I think of Jelaine, all I can think is best wishes. I hope that girl makes it. <laughs> we go to this fancy country club. Right, to ramp up the excitement of this film. Let's go golfing. <laughs> well, we've been playing gin. Now we're going to go play golf. Right, again, just what in the fuck are these people thinking? Goldfinger enters the pro shop and the attendant says, Hey, Mr. Goldfinger, there's a club member with the same handicap as you. You care to play with this guy? His name's Mr. James Bond. And Goldfinger says, I will play with this man. He looks to be a formidable opponent. Bond steps outside and he sees Oddjob, who's going to caddy for Goldfinger, and he is our mystery karate chopping assailant, and one assumes that Oddjob clearly knows who James Bond is, but James Bond doesn't know who Oddjob is. That's right. Right? But then Bond knows that Goldfinger's up to no good, So, but he and he knows that Goldfinger probably killed the girl. It's like, who knows what about who here? Right, but it, it, none of that is played for any kind of tension or anything. It's just a thing that may or may not be informing the scene that doesn't ever really inform any of the performances or what happens in the scene. So it doesn't really matter. Goldfinger says, this meeting is not a coincidence, Mr. Bond. Tell me what you want. And then Sean Connery, or James Bond, is just like, what do you think about this? And throws the Nazi gold on the ground. And Dude, do you think having a Nazi symbol on a gold bar makes it more valuable to those weirdos that collect Nazi memorabilia? Oh, 100%. Yeah, to a certain portion of the market that's got like a uh, a helmet, one of those Kaiser helmets in a glass display case. Absolutely. Ha ha! I've got Nazi gold, Goldfinger. You want to buy it or what? Shit or get off the pot! I need you to finance an expedition. It turns out this gold lies in the bottom of the ocean, surrounded by flesh-eating piranha. It's going to be quite exciting. It's going to be a far better movie than a stupid story about stealing gold. Goldfinger says, how about we increase the stakes of our golf game? Let us say that the bar of gold or the cash equivalent. We are all on the 17th hole. We shall abide by the strict rules of golf. And so whack, they hit their balls for this bet. And Goldfinger's ball goes into the rough. And then James Bond, he finds a ball, but it's not Goldfinger's ball because this ball is marked Slasinger 1, which is the brand and the number marking on the ball. Can we point out for our listeners j just, uh, maybe it's just me, but in the midst of our spy thriller, we have a scene where we're just looking for a lost golf ball. Well, what's wrong with that? It, because it's fucking boring. <laughs> I don't care who finds it. I don't care about golf. Can we just stop all of this? All Like, this whole movie is just farting around like, oh, let's play some golf. Oh, look, I found your ball. <laughs> oh, it's so yeah, stupid. But it's building the character. It's creating the tension, Bo. I suppose. 
<laughs> uh, I'm sure somebody felt tense in this scene of like, oh, because there's a moment, like the whole deal is that Odd Job drops a ball out of his pants because <laughs> he's a real sneaky henchman. He drops a golf ball out of the cup of his pants and because according to the strict rules of golf that Goldfinger has to find his ball in a certain amount of time or he has to take a stroke penalty. Again, the thrilling play-by-play of the golf scene from Goldfinger. <laughs> but uh, eventually, uh, Sean Connery is talking to his caddy and he's like, I, I know that's not his ball because I'm standing right on top of the real one. And so he basically has fed goldfinger at one point a different kind of golf ball so that at the last hole james bond can pull out the original golf ball and be like oh you're playing with the wrong goddamn ball you filthy cheater <laughs> surprise jackass yeah, it turns out you're a, a filthy no good shyster he makes the swap and there's a, a tense scene where the ball falls off the tee and maybe goldfinger is gonna realize <laughs> that the golf ball <gasps> isn't his yeah just, oh god this is so dumb oh <sighs> Afterwards, like Bond loses the hole, the last hole ultimately, but then he reveals this, you know, look, I thought you played a Schlesinger one. This is a Schlesinger seven, you fat liar. But he does that on purpose. Like he misses, it's a pretty easy lie. He misses the putt and then he, he goes over to grab the ball and he's like, wait a minute, this isn't your ball. You're a fucking cheater, you piece of shit. Like he should have just won it honestly. Because James Bond is an awful person, it's way better if you fool someone and cheat. Than it would be to to do the heroic thing and win because you won. Like if Goldfinger had cheated yet somehow that he had still won, that would have been a heroic moment. Instead, he's like, "No, I I cheated, so I know you're a filthy cheater. I became what I beheld, and I embraced the darkness." Goldfinger. That's right. You know, you know what they say: to catch a rapist, you have to be a rapist. Yeah. Who who says that? That's what I say. It's what I read. I wrote it down and then I read it and then I believed it. <laughs> but afterwards, Bond slips a little tracking device into Oddjob's trunk. It's this Rolls Royce, pretty fancy car. Yeah, and Goldfinger comes out of the club and is like, we have met twice, uh, both times I hated it, Mr. Bond. How about you stay out of my business? And he's like, how about I just make the checkout to cash? That's what you freeloaders and grifters like, yes? <laughs> and, and Sean Connery is just like, yeah, make it out to cash. That's how I like it. You know me, Goldfinger. <laughs> Could you imagine anybody walking into a bank with a check for 5,000 pounds? Let's assume an, an even exchange rate for me, a dumb American. Uh-huh. I'm just like, uh, yes, I have this check for $5,000. It's made out to cash from Auric Goldfinger. I'll take that in $5 bills, please. <laughs> I would like all that in nickels, please. Cash. You would get taken to a back room until the authorities could arrive and talk to you about First of all, who is Art Goldfinger? Is why why is his name so dumb? Why is the S backwards in the word cash? It's drawn in the the bank of evil. This is signed with a crayon, sir. This just is a picture of an Asian gentleman with a bowler hat. Yes, that's odd job. That was his caddy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the photo ID that came with the check to prove that it's real. All right. Yeah, you just sit down. Do you want some water or something? And you know what? <laughs> I'm just going to bring you some water. During this scene, Ajab takes off his bowler hat and shows off that this is his weapon of choice where he whips it across the courtyard like a frisbee and it lops off the head of this life-size carved statue and then the head of the statue pops off. One would assume uh, how it would happen if he threw that at a real human being, except, you know, with less blood and screaming. Yeah. James Bond says, oh, what's the club secretary going to think about odd job knocking the heads off all the statues around here? And Goldfinger says, nothing. 
I own the club, Mr. Bond. Ha ha ha. Before they leave, Bond walks over to Ajab, who's in the driver's seat of this, like, open top uh, Rolls Royce, and he's like, hey, handjob, I think this belongs to you, cupcake. And he tosses him the golf ball that he palmed earlier, because he's a dick. And then... Ajab just takes the ball and just squeezes it in his hand so tight that it just crushes into dust. Which I'm like, you know what? If I needed a jar of pickles open, I know who I'm calling. Ajab should be his own like uh, shopping channel uh, salesman and product, you know? It would just be a series <laughs> of grunts uh, would be the pitch. <laughs> uh, you know what? He does seem strong. I wonder if that's where Goldfinger got him. <laughs> Look, I could not resist. I was up late. I had been drinking. You know how it is. I got a job in a set of knives. How much for the large Asian man? Name your price. How many bricks of gold do you want? Whatever you <laughs> ask, it is not enough. I know I am being a terrible negotiator here, but clearly he is something <laughs> special as henchmen go. We go to the airport. Yeah. And we see the Rolls Royce being boarded onto a plane headed to Geneva, Switzerland. And so now we're in Switzerland and Ajab's driving Goldfinger around in his Rolls Royce. And James Bond has pulled some strings. So he's now there following behind them in his Aston Martin. And then behind Bond's car appears a white convertible Ford Mustang with this fancy uh, red interior. It looks a lot like the car that famed arachnologist Diane Ashley drove in Kingdom of the Spiders. And both this was the very first time that the Ford Mustang ever appeared in a movie and the car itself wasn't released for purchase until the year after this movie came out it's also the first time we almost saw somebody jerk off in a car in a movie as Dude. as it zooms by james bond and he looks at her and this is a quote from the film he just goes discipline 007 discipline look seven you got an addiction it's a sex addiction remember what your therapist said you're only as sick as your secrets bond don't make any new secrets on this trip Keep it in your pants, boy -o. So Goldfinger and Ajab stop to buy some fruit or something along the way. Uh-huh. And Bond is watching from an overpass. And then we kind of zoom back to see that someone is watching the watchers. How did she get behind him? Because she passed him on the road, but then he's lower on the winding road as she's setting up with her assassin's gun. One assumes she just climbed the mountain in her car at a direct angle to get higher or something. Who knows, man? She's a terrible assassin. She sucks at everything. She takes She almost shot. shoots James Bond. Right. He thinks that she is trying to kill Jesus him. Jesus Christ. Someone's trying to shoot these cans. Goldfinger is like, he doesn't hate those cans. He hates you. As soon as the shot goes off, Bond and the sexy lady start racing around on roads and she's honking at him and he won't let her pass. So naturally, come on, Bond, you can make one bad secret on this trip. Take her off the road. He waves her around and is like, oh, this will show up and flips on in his Aston Martin supercar. It has blades on the wheels. Uh huh. And it runs two of her tires and runs her off the road. And then James Bond turns off the blades. <laughs> you know, ha ha, perfect crime. Pulls up beside her and asks her to uh, help him move a couch into the back of his van. <laughs> <laughs> the mystery lady assassin says, uh, no. I don't need your help for anything. Take me to the nearest garage. I don't care who you are, and I don't want to know anything about you. Let me ask you, what are you, about a size 14? He, he says, uh, so what's your name? And she's like, my name is Tilly Soames. That's crazy, because your little box up there has... 
T-M and not T-S. I think you're lying to me, you lying whore. So, it's hunting season. I see you got the gun case in the back. And she goes, oh no, that is ice skates. Ha ha! There's no ice skating rinks around here that I know of. I've never been here before, but I haven't seen one. And then finally she's just like, um, there's a garage right there. You can let me out, Bond. So she gets out and she's kind of chatting with, with with a dude at the service station. And Bond checks his radar, which shows that Goldfinger is somewhere behind him, I think. And anyways, she says, it's going to take a day to get new tires. And so she's going to stay behind at the garage, even though James Bond was like, how about you come with me? I can get you some dinner and some passion juice. And she's like, no, thanks. I think I'm I'm much safer here amongst these strangers than with you in your car. I've got a few pills left in a little baggie that I bought from a, a fella down in Miami. Let me tell you about something I got from a friend of mine named Dink. Can I ask you a question? Would you mind taking a look at uh, something on me and tell me if you think I should see a doctor about it? I'll give you three guesses where it is, and the first two don't count. But so Bond traces this radar back to Auric Enterprises. Yes. Where he's just kind of staking it out until night. And then once it gets dark, he he descends down into this compound to kind of investigate. And it turns out there's a surprising amount of Chinese soldiers for it being Geneva. (laughs) Again, another thing about the James Bond movies is who the bad guys are in the film. You know, it's the Chinese, it's the Russians, maybe it's big business, it's someone who has uh, control of technology. Just how you see that evolve over the decades that they've made these movies. Right, like who who you could get away with villainizing at the time. Right. Goldfinger gives up part of the plan here. He's talking to this like Chinese general or official or something. Mr. Ling. Yeah, about how he uses the Rolls Royce to smuggle gold as part of the bodywork. And then he says, Operation Grand Slam will have my undivided attention. And then they kind of disappear into the night, leaving James Bond a creep around back to his hiding spot in the hills. Uh Uh-huh. But as he is climbing away, he hears someone in the brush, and it turns out it's Tilly. And her assassin's rifle. Right. And her terrible marksmanship skills. Right, and then as they tussle over the gun, she trips a wire, which sets off an alarm. And this is also where we learn that this is her real name is Tilly Masterson, Jill's sister. But don't worry about that because none of this matters because she she's there to I'm going to kill Goldfinger. But as the wrestling, this shot rings out, and they they get to Bond's car uh, as the alarm goes off. Uh, but only after he dumps a guy's noggin into the hood of his car, which uh-huh. is maybe be the only action moment in this movie i like where he just grabs this dude and is like i think there's a little dust on my hood why don't you take a closer look for me and then just kink <laughs> and the guy goes down it's pretty good and then it's the james bond gadget stuff where he he uses a smoke screen and some a, a car chase him hits a tree and then they he uses the oil slick and the driver spin out and they just go off a, a cliff and explode you can't tell me that's not an awesome explosion it's a good explosion it doesn't make no sense but it's a good explosion no, it's a real Toons is the driving cat. And so they end up at this cliff edge, and Bond is like, I'll hold off the soldiers. You run, Tilly. And so she run makes a run for it, and Oddjob just throws his hat and fucking murders Tilly by, I guess, breaking her neck or crushing her skull or something. There's no blood. I mean, it's the time the movie was made, but nobody is even like, it turns out Oddjob broke her fucking neck. You know, there's never a moment where they address it. Tilly is just gone from the movie now. 
A bunch of these Chinese henchmen, they capture Bond, but instead of putting him in one of their cars, they let him drive his own car. You know, the one that had smoke screens and oil slicks and machine guns in the back of it. Right. But they throw a henchman in with him to sit aside to make sure there's no more monkey business going on. And then on their way back to the smelting compound, Bond uses his prostitute ejector seat and just blows the henchman out into the air and Bond drives off to make his escape. And Bond whips around the smelting compound, bullets are flying, body counts rising and then the car just crashes into the wall because bond is heading down an alleyway and he sees a mirror and thinks it's another car coming at him how embarrassing again bond is not very smart in this movie and this is one of those moments where he behaves much like a bird would if you just held a mirror <laughs> out to it you know holy shit that car's coming right at me and the driver looks just like me look at that handsome devil i better move out of the way i don't want to rough up his pretty looks and so he just crashes into a wall and falls out of the car unconscious and they're like what a fucking idiot come, somebody come get this guy and so he wakes up and this is the other big famous scene of the movie i think i i agree with you this is quite possibly the most famous scene in any james bond movie ever yeah and i will give gert frobe or whatever the sausage king of <laughs> chicago i will give him full credit here as giving a great performance as a villain mostly because i like the attitude of just like i don't give a shit you know like that's what i want from a a, a bond villain is somebody that's just like fuck you you're gonna die and i'm gonna enjoy it and and so long i think the only line of dialogue that he actually voiced in this film was the i expect you to die line. No, i actually I, I dug into this and there are a handful of lines that are him in the speech that he gives all the the mobsters uh -huh. There's some of that that's actually him. Okay. But yeah, you're right. It, it's it's few and far between. It's mostly this, you know, the British actor whose name I can't remember now, but Bonds on the table. Right. Spread Eagle. Arms and legs strapped down. Right. And Goldfinger is like, I like your toys. I have new toys too. Like this laser that is comically lit up like it is a 1960s Christmas ornament. He says, My toy is considerably more practical. And it's a goofy looking laser. It's awesome. Bond says, ha, I think you made your point, Goldfinger. And Goldfinger says, choose your next witticism carefully, Mr. Bond. It may be your last. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. Yeah, it's the classic, what do you want, Goldfinger? Do you expect me to talk? And it's Goldfinger saying, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. It's <laughs> it's really good. It's the one, the one moment in this movie that I'm like, congratulations, Mr. Bond. You just got gold burned. <laughs> You are not the only one who can make hilarious quips at inappropriate moments. James Bond weasels out of this by saying, Oh, hey, 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 look, if I don't show up, uh, 00H gonna replace me. Yeah, that sounds good. And he's a pro. He's not running around looking for some strange in every city he goes to. He gives a shit about his job. Not like me. I got one thing on my mind 24 hours a day, and it sure as hell isn't anything concerned with you. As best I know, he's never once crashed one of his super fancy cars into a brick wall because of a mirror. That's some 007 shit, not 008. And he's coming after me. Gold member hears the mention of 008, and he says, I trust he will be more successful. Do you need to put some aloe lotion on that gold burn? <laughs> James Vaughn says, You know, you can't afford to kill me when I know so much about Operation Grand Slam. You know nothing, Mr. Bond. You know nothing at all. Henchman 24, please call the fire department. I am gold burning down the house. Someone get me a handheld microphone so that I may drop it from the air to emphasize my point. And James Bond's way out of this is basically saying, Come on. 
And then Goldfinger is like, you know what? I can't afford for you to be telling the truth. Turn the laser off. And it is the flimsiest reason. Like, why doesn't Goldfinger at this point say, tell me literally anything about Operation Grand Slam other than the name and we will stop the laser. Go on, (laughs) anything. Tell me a country, a person, anything about the Operation Grand Slam other than the name which you already know. All right, smart guy. You want some details on Operation Grand Slam? It's got pancakes and sausage, (laughs) eggs and bacon. I feel pretty sure about that. Those are code words. Or maybe not. Let the laser bisect his diseased wiener. Goldfinger says, I find your screams and please delightful, but I shall let you live. You are worth more alive to me than dead. At the least, I will trade you to a pervert I know who delights in non-consensual furry play where he forces others to dress as giant bears, all in an attempt to control the weather. He is looking for a young ward to serve as his apprentice, and you look exactly to be his type, Mr. Bond. It's a stupid reason to let Bond off the off this table. I don't buy it for a second, and I think Goldfinger's plan is is mostly nonsense. It's completely nonsense. But this moment in particular, you know, it, it's that hey, your mother's name is Martha moment from Batman versus Superman or whatever, where it's just like this is the dumbest reason for this to happen in this movie. Look, you kill me, you're gonna get eight, all right? Stick with seven. You know what you got. The devil you know is better than the devil you don't. I'm an idiot. You saw me? I crashed my car because I had a big mirror in front of me. So a technician just comes up and tranks James Bond. Shoots him up close with a dark gun, like three inches away. Could you have used a syringe? That seems a bit much. He's not an elephant. James Bond wakes up and there is, God damn it, pussy galore. Who are you? My name is Pussy Galore. I must be dreaming. I thought I'd wake up dead. You don't wake up dead, you idiot. You're just dead. This is one of those original line things that, uh, much like Blazing Saddles, is like the movie would have been not better uh, in this case, but certainly more entertaining if they had kept the original line. Because she says, I'm pussy galore. And James Bond says, of course you are. You know, something like that. The Uh, original line was, I know you are, but what's your name? And somebody at Standards was like, hold on for a goddamn minute. We can't have him directly referencing her pussy in this. Cut, cut. We, You know what, Sean? Could you do me a favor? Could you ad-lib a couple of lines? Just take it from, she just said, I'm pussy galore and begin. Let me see your vagina. Cut, Sean. Sean, we need you to make it more family friendly. All right. Okay? Just take it from, I'm pussy galore and action. All right. What's, what's your name again? Vagina Buffet. No. Cut. No, let's let's try this again. And action. It's nice to meet you, Snatch Cornucopia. No, cut. Shut. I need, we really need this to be more family friendly. Imagine a young niece or nephew is with you in the theaters. She has just said, my name is Pussy Galore. Got it. They both look a little curious hearing her say this. Your next line needs to be appropriate for everyone in the theater, excluding you. Okay, so, and action. Nice to meet you, Beaver Bonanza. Cut. Yes. Sean. Yes. I thought the beaver was good because it's a furry animal. It's a friendly woodland creature. Sometimes they come up and you can pet them on their little noggin. You know what? Let's let's call it lunch. 15 minutes, everybody. Oh, I'm down here at the Y. 
for lunch if you get my drift. I don't know if you understand the subtlety of me saying, pushy galore, I'm going to dine at the Y. So the the line, of course, from Blazing Saddles was in the Bernadette Peters and Cleavon Little scene where they have sex after the musical number. When the light goes out, she says like, oh, it's true, it's true. And the original line was Cleavon Little saying, ma'am, you're sucking on my arm, which is a fantastic <laughs> line that also reasonably censors cut it. So they're on a plane over Newfoundland, as it happens, on their way to Baltimore. There is uh, Miley, the Asian flight attendant. She's kind of the female odd job, but without any real uh, sense of killing people. Oh, yeah, or purpose in the movie other than to yeah. just bring James Bond martini. Uh, of course, shaken, not stood. She's a, got a little bit of forced perversion on her. We'll talk about that in about two minutes. Yeah. So James Bond is kind of scoping out like, so pushy, what is it that you do for Goldfinger? And if you tell me you fuck him, we're definitely not doing it because I don't go Eskimo Brothers with that fat piece of shit. You could ask Jill Masterson about that, but he covered it in gold paint because I fucked her first. I'm Mr. Goldfinger's pilot and I do not have sex with him. And I'm not having sex with you either. At least not right now. Thank you very much. And she she says, you can turn off the charm, Mr. Bond. I'm immune. And I was like, oh, she's gay. And that would at least make her character kind of interesting in this movie. But of course, it's the times and you can't really do that. As you said in your introduction. But all the signs are there. Dude, he's slugging down this martini. And he starts saying things, trying to get her to react to pry her for information. He goes, here's to Operation Grand Slam. And then Pussy Galore doesn't even bat an eye. And he's like, I said, here's to Operation Grand Slam, the grandest of slamberations. Pussy Galore, I hope if that's your real name, I'm trying to pry you for information. Grand Slam. Just to keep a score in this movie, the smartest thing that James Bond has done as a super agent is to squirt plastique on a drug lab and blow it up. That is that's that is good. That, that's not bad, but it doesn't necessarily require a high degree of expertise. And all I agree all he's that. done in this situation is get ca- is get captured and get a woman murdered. So far, James <laughs> Bond is batting about a zero. James Bond says, "My Lee, I'd like to change clothes, give myself a horse bath, clean up any swamp ass or ball musk that accumulated over the last twenty four hours. I sweat a lot. You see, I'm wearing a wig." And so, Pussy Galore tells Miley to keep an eye on James Bond while he changes clothes in the bathroom on the plane. And Miley does so by using not one, but two separate peepholes into this bathroom. Yeah. Whoever owns this plane is a pervert or the designer of Olympic-sized swimming pools that have underwater viewing areas. <laughs> I mean, it's Goldfinger's plane, so he's clearly like, Pussy, why don't you go to the bathroom again? I don't have to go to the bathroom, Goldfinger. I think you do. Just sit on the toilet and think about things. It's a good time to meditate. And ignore that tiny little hole that's three feet off the ground on the door. It helps keep the cabin pressurized. Also, when you are in the toilet, sometimes the movement of the plane can sound like the heavy breathing of an obese man masturbating. Do not be alarmed. And if anything does come out, do us all a favor and don't flush. That will cause the plane to explode. I will go in and remove the refuse myself. Don't you have people for that, Goldfinger? 
I like to be a man of the people. There are some things I like to do myself. It keeps me grounded. Not only am I a supervillain, but also I know what it's like for all of my underlings. In fact, I refuse to make more than 30 times what the lowest paid employee at Goldfinger Enterprises makes. That is my promise to you. I've pitched a television show to the Central Broadcasting Network. It's called Undercover Pervert Boss, where I go in and pretend to be a normal person and find my way into the ladies' bathrooms and then show off at the end of the program what types of treasures I have found floating in the toilet bowl. Oh look, I think this is one of my lace on you socks. I will sell this for a hundred dollars. <laughs> when he emerges from the bathroom after cleaning up and, and subverting Miley's attempts. He shaves in there. Who does that? Again, this is all a bunch of hyper-masculine bullshit of like, look at me, I'm clean shaven. Even in the face of certain death, I'm going to maintain my aura of masculine mystique. And when he comes out of the bathroom, Pussy Galore pulls a gun on him and is like, we can do this the easy way or the hard way, James. Look, Pussy, that's a Smith & Wesson something caliber weapon. You shoot that off, it's going to blow out the fuselage like shit through a goose, creating a vacuum that would suck both of us out through the hole. I don't know why I'm telling you this now, but it's probably going to be important later. Then we, we have a cutaway to Felix Leiter calling him. And just being like, hey, um, I know I don't work for you or nothing, and we have a, a completely undefined uh, relationship, but uh, I, I picked up James Bond's homing signal coming in on a jet register to Goldfinger, and him is just like, very well, keep an eye on him, but it sounds like Bond has things well in hand. Yeah, and oh, and by the way, he's in Kentucky. I know they said the plane was going to Baltimore, but we're in Kentucky now. Because ain't nobody paying attention that much in this movie. It became an unexpected classic. The plane <laughs> then pulls into a hangar. Mark Pussy Galore's Flying Circus. Anybody who attended this air stunt show called Pussy Galore's Flying Circus, they did not get what they expected. No, they clearly expected a bunch of invisible plates like Wonder Woman and just naked ladies flying around. That would be my read on this situation. If I had to put myself in 1960s America and I see a big banner at an airplane hangar that says Pussy Galore's Flying Circus, I am fully expecting to pay three times more than what I think I'm going to pay. When I go inside, it's going to be full frontal trapeze work. A a sexy Cirque du Soleil? If you can imagine such a thing. I can absolutely. In fact, I'm investing heavy in it. It's going to be the thing (laughs) that brings people out of their COVID houses. Pussy Galois, Flying Circus. In this airplane hangar, there are more of these Chinese henchmen running around. I'm guessing they're Chinese. They're dressed like the henchmen back in Geneva that worked for Mr. Ling. And Bond gets off the plane, as does Pussy Galore. And then five small airplanes are flying in formation up in the sky. And Bond says, ha ha! Those men flying that plane, they're some talented chaps. You can't find that kind of man pilot just anywhere, Pussy Galore. And Pussy Galore says, I trained them. And they're women. And you're a disgusting pig. And then off she goes. They land, man. And it's real, like, saxophone as these sexy ladies get out where it's just like... It sounds like the music that played when Ralphie's dad pulled that leg lamp out of that box. (laughs) Yeah, and Pussy Galore is just like, I call them Fox Force 5, James. Fox, because, you know, they're foxes. Force, because they are forced to be reckoned with, James. And why do you call them five? Is it because they all have five toes on each foot? I can remedy that situation. Get me a pair of pliers, a bottle of vodka, and a copy of the Bible, King James. Conversely, are any of them mission toes? I got a few Lucy's here. <laughs> Dude, these 
female pilots. They've got like platinum blonde Dolly Parton brand highfalutin wigs on their head. And they've got these push-up bras that make their boobs like point upward. And they're wearing these skin-tight black outfits. It is such a moment from the 1960s. I wish it were goofier. Again, because some of this... It's unintentionally goofy. That's what makes it so damn entertaining. I would enjoy it more if it knew that it were as dumb as it is. No, that's what makes it even better. Because it thinks it's being really, really good. And you're just like, this is just a mess. Country music plays as James Bond and Ajab arrive at this uh, stable. And (laughs) this is Auric Stud is the name of this horse ranch. And Goldfinger is getting off a horse with with a set of stairs and a sigh of relief from the horse. He tells Ajab, you can take James Bond to his quarters now. Don't be fooled by me using the word quarters. It is totally a dungeon, James Bond. I think you will like it. Did you think these were slave quarters on this plantation? It never occurred to me till you said it, but now that makes a lot of sense. That's where they threw him. Certainly not a whole lot of black folk in this movie, that's for sure. I don't think there's any black people in this, but as we continue through the series, that all changes dramatically. I'll never say it, but you know, if we watch those movies, I will. Sure. We cut back to Lighter and his pal, again, debating whether or not they should do their jobs. They're hanging outside an old school KFC, man, right. with the Colonel Sanders logo on the building and everything. Yeah, they're just like, should we sit here and get another bucket of finger licking or go i don't know check on this super spy that seems to be down the block and they're just like eh we'll just hang out he'll yell if he needs us again we are cutting away to a scene where people decide not to go check on james bond back at the horse ranch the main henchman who's not asian he comes over to goldfinger and goes in his office and he says uh hey mr goldfinger all your guests are here and goldfinger he gets up and he goes into this grand hall of this horse farm and there is this gang of hollywood gangsters that would make nathan detroit proud and goldfinger comes in and he says please gentlemen sit down and stop your petty east coast west coast feuds we are not gangster rappers from the 1990s we are 1960s hollywood mobsters please act like it you've all given me money and now i shall provide some details of the nefarious plot that i have conceived yeah so gary marshall is one of the thugs here which is kind of fun to see oh i missed that yeah. that's nice yeah i can see him now that you say that yeah he's in the mix here one of them's riding a wooden horse like a ding dong yeah it's a real <laughs> motley crew of mafia <laughs> Dude, Goldfinger pushes this button under a pool table and it flips over revealing this control panel and Goldfinger starts mashing all manner of buttons and twisting dials and doodads and then the room transforms to show an aerial map and this picture's like two stories tall. That's this black and white image of Fort Knox and all the mobsters say like, say, you're going to rob Fort Knox? That's ridiculous. Forget about it. And then Goldfinger, he flips another switch and then a scale model of Fort Knox rises up out of the floor and it's a pretty impressive model i wonder what he told his contractor look i'm going to need a lot of work done with models also it's going to need to rise and flip out of the floor there's going to be some changes with the lighting at the touch of a button mr goldfinger mr goldfinger this is gonna cost you it's probably gonna cost you like i don't know one 
200 gold bricks? Look, I have all the gold bricks you need. I'm glad you said that, because this is not only going to take all the gold bricks you got, it's going to take seven, eight weeks just to get in all the material. You're going to have to hire professional modelers, you know? You're going to have to get the people that actually construct these these pool tables to be able to come in and put the inner mechanics to flip this thing over so that you can have your controls and doodads under it. And then you said, what? You want the wet bar to spin around and turn into some sort of display station? Wait, hold on a second. And then at the end, am I reading this correct? It says, you want to be able to close off the entire room so that no oxygen can get in or get out. Mr. Goldfinger, this doesn't sound above board at all. Look, I got to tell you, what you're talking about is the poison gas package. That's going to mean at least three different union contracts. Now, if you're willing to take the time and spend the money, and I mean grease and some palms here, we can get the poison gas to work for you. But I'm telling you right now, it's better if we just make plastic drop downs everywhere, you shoot everybody, then the blood is just more of a cleanup situation as opposed to, you know, a dragon hole situation like you get with the poison gas. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel that what you've just described provides the level of theatrics that I am proposing to explain to these mobsters my plan to rob Fort Knox? Of course it doesn't. I want this to be dramatic. If you want to be a true supervillain, you must do things with flair. What you are describing is basic thug behavior. I am not like that. I own horses. I have a manservant. I paint women gold and fuck them. Let me ask you a question. Now that I think we may have achieved a level of understanding here, Mr. Goldfinger, what you're talking about when you say theatrics, how do you feel about maybe an underground prison? We already have slave quarters in the house, but if you would like to add that on at your own cost, I believe that the overall financing of this contract will make it well worth your efforts. I'll tell you what, one other little wrinkle. At the end of all this, I get to take pictures of everything from modern architecture. Yes, you can do all of that, but stay out of the bathrooms, especially after one of the ladies goes in there. We have a special man. His name is Roderick Goldhandler. He's my twin cousin. He's the one who cleans out the ladies' bathrooms. I'll tell you what, say no more. We're going to have peepholes in every bathroom. Also, can you make the deposit check out to cash? Would you like for me to write this in red or green crayon? You know what? Dealer's choice. Bond is is hanging out in his cell, and this is real dumb, too, where he does the good old-fashioned, like, I'm pacing back and forth and winking at the guard and getting his attention. And then he does the old elevator trick where he just, like, hits his button and checks his watch and descends from view. <laughs> and the guard's like, huh? <laughs> right. Like, hey, it's 1960. Nobody ever saw this trick before. There's not an elevator in there. Right. <laughs> Maybe there is. I don't remember seeing one, but. That contractor they hired, he put all kinds of wacky shit in this building. I better go investigate. Guy just count a Monte Cristo and elevator while I wasn't looking? And so the guard goes in there and, and James Bond is hanging onto the ceiling and high kibas down onto him and, and, and kicks him out. This was a moment I called bullshit. How did he get up to the ceiling like Spider-Man? Oh, this was the moment. See, mine was when he showed up with the bird on his head. But, you know, <laughs> to each their own. I say that because I could never do it. Oh. I'm like, that's impossible. I do it on the regular here at home. I just practice. That's why when I watch a Jackie Chan movie, I'm like, as if. That's CGI. Like when he jumps through the shopping cart, you're just like, no. <laughs> That's fake. That's a dummy. Right. James Bond sneaks under this big model of Fort Knox and listens in on the whole plan, which is they're going to drop this nerve gas ahead of the assault on Fort Knox. It's going to knock out all the soldiers. Then they're going to dynamite the security gate and then go to the main entrance and they're going to demolish that. And then Bond is just writing all this down. And he's like, go on. That nerve gas, you say. All right. Dynamite. That's exciting. And then one of the hoods is just like, you know what, Goldfinger? How about you go fuck yourself? Why don't you just give me my money? And Goldfinger is like, 
I'm very sorry to hear you say that. And then takes him to a private meeting, he says, while Bond puts this note around his homing device with all the details of what Operation Grand Slam is. Right. And as he is prepping his device, someone grabs his leg and yanks him off his perch. And it turns out it's pussy galore. And she's got some guards too. She gets the gun that he took from the guard and handed over Bond. Then one of Goldfunker, Goldfinger's flunkies escorts this thug in his million and gold out in his car and pussy galore and james bond just go to meet goldfinger she's like look i caught him sneaking around goldfinger while this is happening bond manages to slip this tracker and the note into this thug's pocket was that his plan again i don't think he had maybe in the long term yes but i don't know that it was hey i'm going to use this guy in particular again it doesn't matter because nothing comes of it james bond says haha surprise goldfinger i heard all about your plan operation grand slam i know what you're up to goldfinger you're not so clever you fat ass goldfinger just wanders off he doesn't even respond to him because bond is no threat at all to goldfinger yeah how is bond more valuable alive than dead why don't they just shoot him and go on i think at this point goldfinger's whole philosophy is if we keep this asshole alive they're not gonna send another spy and this (laughs) spy is so shitty that he poses no threat to us (laughs) And at the end of the day, all he really does is let somebody else know that Goldfinger is a threat and then they deal with it. The homing device, for example, like leader Felix is like, hey, uh, James Bond is on the move or his tracking device is on the move. So they they finally give up the KFC for this super low speed pursuit. Of Oddjob and this thug. It turns out that Oddjob takes the guy to a secluded spot, turns around Godfather style, and just shoots the dude, which is... Yeah. Again, the least surprising thing that could happen in this movie. He's not a very good mobster. I mean, clearly, when he was like, hey, uh, listen, see, I don't want to be part of this plan, see? I want my money, see? And when Goldfinger's like, that is very acceptable. Why don't you come with me? We're going into the plastic top room. Why don't you go with my brother's henchman and sit in the back of a car? Also, another car that (laughs) looks just like a gun on wheels will be traveling behind you at a slow (laughs) speed. Pay no mind to it. Also, one of my other henchmen will be beside you holding a gun in your liver. After he shoots this guy, Ajab takes the car to a scrapyard to get the car crushed in an excruciatingly long scene of stock footage of how cars get crunched down into cubes. It feels like a short educational film on car crushing. Everything that happens in this whole stable sequence could be ripped wholesale from the movie and it wouldn't matter. See, Billy, new cars come from old cars, and those old cars are taken apart to make all manner of things. Oil cans, handcuffs, prison cells. So Felix Leiter, Leiter, and his CIA buddy are just like, huh, we lost the signal. Guess we'll go back. That's the whole fucking scene, man. Were you excited when Ajab got inside that blue El Camino and they dropped the cube in the back of it? I like a good El Camino in a movie. I like the El Camino and it's nice to see a scrapyard because it makes me think of Herbie. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> there's no blood or, or flesh or hair poking out of this no, car key. There's also no engine in the car, if you pay attention, as they're <laughs> brushing it. Well, for a stickler for details, Bo, there's no body in the car either. Well, fair enough. You and I both know that that thing squirts like a grape. Goldfinger <laughs> is trying to make a little time. They're like having a little drink on the veranda or something uh-huh. with Pussy Galore. And he's just like, so have you ever consented to maybe having sex with a grotesquely fat villainous man? No, I'm not going to have sex with you. And after I get my cut of the money, I'm going to Jamaica and I'm going to get my groove back. She says, I'm going to go back to nature, which just means she's not going to shave her bush anymore. And it sounds all right. I'm with you. Honor Blackman really is good in this. And I like her in the Avengers and I like her in this. I just, I hate the fact that the name is Pussy Galore. I think that's incredibly stupid. I think she's fine. It's not the stupidest name we're going to hear this season. No, not at all. But it's just one of those things that's like, it's one of the flags that tells me like, this is a media uh, product that is not for you. A character that is unironically named Pussy Galore. I think that they thought that was clever. And I disagree. (laughs) One of Goldfinger's goons then sees like Leader and his partner kind of watching them over the rails of of the the farm. Just hanging out and peeking with their binoculars. Because again, nobody's Uh a very good spy in this. And Goldfinger is like, they are probably just people from the racing magazines looking for tips. But in case they're with Bond, they should see that he is in no danger at all. And so they bring him out to have a drink. But before he gets there, Goldfinger is like, also, Pussy Galore, you should put on something that looks sexier instead of your mannish clothes now that make me want to throw up. She's like, fine, Goldfinger. I think I can find something sexual. Bond comes up to this plantation house and goldfinger says mr bond would you care to play a game of pool and no you would not need to put on your swim trunks you see you're a stupid man and do not understand that pool is not the same as playing in a pool you just got gold burned now sit down so i can explain my sinister plan as all great james bond villains do at some point in the movie right and bond's like wait a minute goldfinger Delta 9 nerve gas is lethal. You spray that over Fort Knox, you're going to kill 60,000 people, not counting women and minorities. He also points out, like, I just now thought about this, Goldfinger, but the idea of breaking into Fort Knox and stealing all that gold is fucking stupid. It turns out you would need, like, 200 people working 12 hours a day on 200 trucks to get all that gold out of there. There's no way that you could get any amount of money before the authorities showed up. What the fuck is your real plan? And then Goldfinger just looks at him and smiles and he's like, yes, keep going. You're getting warmer. Keep following this through to its illogical conclusion. Wait a second. So you've also been working with this Ling fellow. Yeah, this Chinaman. He's probably up to no good. I haven't mentioned this before because I just thought of it, but he's one of the leading nuclear scientists in the world. Hmm. He's also got a large supply of Macy's Day balloons. I'm thinking he's going to take one of those balloons and attach some sort of atomic radiation into the sky to kill the Pope. Is that your plan, Goldfinger? (laughs) No, that is ridiculous. You said I was warm. How in the hell can I suddenly be cold? So, it's not one product, but if you used the toothpaste and the deodorant, that's what gives you the Joker grin. 
you're way off base. Let's go back to when you were warmer. We were talking about the gold and blowing up Fort Knox, and you started talking about Mr. Ling. Follow that line of thinking. You can do this, Bond. You're going to use Ling as a giant shovel to scoop the gold out of Fort Knox. No, wait, he's too small for that. Nuclear material. Wait a second. You're not planning to steal the gold at all. You're planning to lock Ling in there so he can sing to it, lull it to sleep, get it on your side. You're getting closer, but you need to back away from the singing. We're not going to steal the gold. We're going to... Schmeal the gold. No, Mr. Bond. Aha! You're going to blow the gold up! You're going to eat the gold! You're going to shit out gold! Blow it up is actually very, very close. Hmm. You're going to shave it down and you're going to put it into some sort of terrible licorice liqueur and sell it to white trash who like to think that they're really drinking the stuff. You know what? This is really mind-blowing that any of you have ever achieved anything remotely close to success as a spy. You are truly (laughs) stupid, man. No, we're going to blow up a nuclear bomb. It's going to irradiate the gold for generations. It's a brilliant plan and wasted on you. Wait, you're just going to make the gold radiated so it's not worth value for? What, that'd have to last for like 57 years? 58 to be exact, but honestly, the fact that you got the concept at all is really encouraging. But what happens after the 58 years? I mean, they just leave the gold in the vault. It's still there. It still maintains its value. It doesn't matter. You're not really thinking about this plan long term. He ultimately is like, this will cause chaos in Western economies, increase the value of the gold that you already have, Goldfinger. Yeah, the Chinese get what they want, and you get what you want, and I get what I want, to go over there and milk that horse. It's a win-win-win. Aja pulls up with this <laughs> cube of a car in the back, and Goldfinger is like, I'm sorry, Mr. Bunt, I have to go separate my gold from Mr. Solo. <laughs> he fucks off, and Pussy Galore is like, well, I guess it's just you and me, James, but I warn you, I'm proficient in judo. Don't try any of those tricks with me. I'm also wearing skin-tight purple pants and a low-cut purple blouse. Let's go off to the horse stables. It's a real, tell me, Pushy, why are you mixed up in all this? One quick thing that happens here is that Felix and his partner are still hanging out in the bushes, and Felix looks at his partner and says, hey, you know what? I'm tired. Let's leave. So they just leave the farm. Don't nobody care about anything that's happening in this movie, which makes it harder for me as a viewer to care. Even the people in the movie don't care. Yeah, right, (laughs) when one of the supporting characters is like, taking a while, isn't it? Let's just get the fuck out of here. So they go to the barn, Bond and Pussy Galore do. See here, Pussy, I want to have sex with you, and no is not an option. And look, this isn't sexual assault, because I'm handsome and charming and you can't say no. He kind of quiet mans her a couple of times where she tries to leave and he yanks her back into his arms. Dude, the music tells us that this is all very playful sexual assault. It feels like a scene from The Parent Trap starring Haley Mills and Haley Mills, but with more gratuitous undertones of impending rape. Like, it's one thing where it's like, oh, she kind of gives him a little a little struggle but then they end up kissing her attempts to get away from him are kind of violent like she is really trying to get out from under him before she submits resistance is futile i'm the star of the movie you're gonna kiss me and fuck me whether you want to or not and it's not rape because it's in my contract i can do whatever i want i'm famous i'll grab you pussy galore I'm like the fucking Borg of sexual assault. Resistance is futile. So he ends up forcing her to have sex, and that's what happens. He ends up forcing her to consent to have sex. Well, all right, if you want to parse words like that, sure. He subdues her until she gives in. How about that? With hindsight, this is one of those scenes that you're just like, it is shocking that this is in a movie. Yes, it is. 
It's really deplorable behavior. I hate to, to stick on this, but the scenes where they're where she's struggling against him, the music is like <laughs> And she's just like, get off of me. Yeah, it's a real look at this silly girl. Try not to get a dick. It's really frustrating to watch as it in, in modernized and I think it's one of the reasons that I just never liked these movies as a kid. It was just like this always felt inappropriate. Anyway, so the Fox Force Five takes off with their their gas tanks and they start dumping the gas. And again, in a truly stupid looking sequence, everybody on the base just hilariously passes out where they're just like, oh, there goes the day. It feels like everyone at Fort Knox is trying to get into the Guinness Book of World Records by performing the largest game of Ring Around the Rosie. And this all happened when they got to the all fall down part. It's really dumb looking. And then a bunch of Chinese soldiers roll up with stolen army jeeps and trucks and whatnot. And they use some explosive pool noodles to blow up the gates. And then they use the the big goofy laser beam that they were going to shoot James Bond's dick with. And Bond is handcuffed to Oddjob in the back of one of these trucks for a reason that that I am incapable of comprehending. Why would they bring him? Well, because the idea ultimately is that they're going to kill him along with irradiating the bomb because they they no longer have a use for him they're not going to try to stave off another agent showing up so they can just get rid of the dumb agent that they got on hand just shoot him put him in a car throw him in the el camino and take him down to the scrapyard i agree but also goldfinger is a super villain and he's just like you know this guy's been a real cocksucker and a real pain in my ass and i want him handcuffed to a nuclear bomb when it goes off because that's the kind of person i am one thing we need to point out is that as all of these chinese henchmen and Ajab and James Bond, as they all go to break into Fort Knox, as they approach the gate, a CIA's own Felix is in a car with his partner, and they're in the backseat of the car, but they've been knocked out with sleeping gas too. And I was thinking like maybe Felix just had his head out the window when he got a whiff of gas, like he was a dog or something. Oh, he loves it when you're going about 40. He just sticks his head out and opens his mouth. I wish I could run this fast. You know, if you don't stop and smell the roses every once in a while or just shove your head out the window of a moving car. I mean, what's life living? What are we even fighting for, Jerry? After they blast through the garage door of Fort Knox. (laughs) Yeah, with the laser. With this laser, which by the way, this type of laser did not even exist when the book was written or this movie came out. But luckily, science caught up with Ian Fleming's imagination, or Bo, you and I would have not had technology to make the end of the movie Bordello of Blood a reality. Right. If only Chris Sarandon were around to be like, somebody turned down the power on that lesser lot to... <laughs> They get through the the front door and, you know, everybody is piling through. Pussy Galore uh, shows up with, with Goldfinger in the choppa. Dude, Goldfinger hops out of this helicopter looking like Foghorn Leghorn on his way to a football game. He's got this big brown coat that goes all the way, like almost below his shoes. And he's got this big colorful ascot and goldfinger comes over to james bond and says mr bond come inside and see the bomb that i'm going to use to complete my diabolical plan but they go ahead and arm the bomb and a countdown actually begins right here but as that happens all the soldiers and leader and everybody get up because it's like (laughs) we were fooling yes but here's the thing Mm-hmm. When you watch this movie the first time, you're thinking, were they pretending to fall asleep? Yes. Did it only work for a few minutes? Did it knock out everyone across Fort Knox? Because if that's the case, all of these soldiers, did they just get orders one day? Like, soldier, tomorrow at 0 
You all will fall to the ground and pretend to be asleep. I don't want anyone making murmur noises or <laughs> noises. You will lay on the ground and be perfectly quiet. Sir, yes, sir. It's the real problem with the end of Saw for me, which is you're counting on someone to lay perfectly still for a period of time when it's just impossible for human beings to do that for any length of time. And especially this many people. Like, you had people, like, slumped over Jeeps and stuff, and it, which meant that the drivers had to be like, oh, geez, I need to park this real quick. <laughs> all right, but put in gear. <laughs> and then, and then for all of them to be like, opening one eye kind of slowly like oh is anybody looking hey the whole army be quiet and let's sneak up on these guys the reason they all fake asleep and you find this out in a very quickly spoken line is that felix says oh pussy galore uh, help me swap the gas canisters and she called washington and then that's it the only thing james bond does effectively in this movie is fuck somebody so well that they turn state's evidence that is his only accomplishment we'll get to that here in just a few minutes but they handcuff james bond to the bomb and they send him down an elevator inside the depository itself just as outside the american military is showing up to do battle with these chinese soldiers who are in fort knox and it's a real firefight back and forth and whatnot dude goldfinger he strips out of that thick brown overcoat and he's wearing this army uniform underneath it's kind of like how bond did at the beginning of the film with his tuxedo these two they're not so different from one another i'm not going back to prison you can't make me i don't know who <laughs> these people are i am clearly american general hot dog apple pie rock and roll hey who wants a slice of pepperoni pizza high five goldfinger picks up a gun and he shoots his chinese partner mr ling and then goldfinger shoots a bunch of the soldiers the american soldiers to make his escape and then we cut back down to the vault and the main henchman who works with goldfinger he looks at odd job and he says hey man the bomb i can remove the fuse seeing as the three of us are trapped in here and we're all gonna die and then odd job's like oh he picks the dude up chunks him off this four-story platform this guy hits the ground dead odd job if anything is loyal to the cause he is a zealot and so bond is like wait a second that guy he just threw over the side of the railing, he's got the key to these handcuffs. I could get the fuck out of here. So he starts <laughs> dragging the bomb towards this henchman, and Ajab sees this, and he's like, uh-uh. Runs after James Bond is like running run down the steps. Ajab throws his hat and misses, which is a real limitation of the hat weapon. Get one shot. Right. And then you gotta, oh, gotta go get the hat. And then Ajab throws his hat again, and this cuts an electrical line, which will come into play here in a minute. Right. And then Bond, who finally gets free, just throws a brick of gold at Ajab's head, which bounces off his skull, and Ajab just grins at him, and then they wrestle some more. I like this scene a lot because, one, there's no music, there's just this quiet, hum in the background that a scene like this probably wouldn't be made in a james bond movie today or maybe you know as a throwback but when you watch it it's kind of unsettling to watch the two of them go at it and odd job is just toying with him and watching james bond punch him it's like watching me fight a six-year-old again he's just like throwing his best punches and odd job puts his hands out palms up and just wiggles his fingers like get up man let's keep fighting i'm enjoying this we're both going to hell tonight i might as well do it on my feet and fighting right there's a bomb that is literally gonna blow up in less than what 60 seconds on the other side of the room and he's just like you know what i'm gonna go out dying the way that i live my life 
taking punches and beating the shit out of people. Instead, what what happens is James Bond takes this dropped electrical or cut electrical line that is sparking uh, behind him. Oddjob goes to get his hat, which is embedded in some metal bars. When he reaches for the hat, James Bond touches the electrical line to the metal bars, which conducts the electricity, thus frying Oddjob. We don't know that it kills him, but that is the presumption, I would assume. He's not going to walk correctly after this. Sure. And then Bond then goes, Oh shit, I got to get to that bomber to the big box. How in the fuck am I going to get in there? What happened to that key? Good question. Doesn't he just break it off with a gold brick ultimately or something? He's like a monkey trying to get into his like treat box. He grabs two bricks and he's just like, Oh shit, I got to get inside this thing. Clank, clank, come on. Clank, clank. And when he finally gets the thing open and starts to look at it, it's just like, huh, this looks really complicated. Bo, it <laughs> it is this mass of wires and spinning gears and flashing lights. It would be like sitting my dog down in front of the exposed workings of a washing machine. <laughs> he has no idea what to do here. There are 30 seconds left before he's going to die. And he does nothing to help the situation. He maybe should be given credit for opening up this box. Okay. But beyond that, like his face staring at these gears, he would be better suited to be in a classroom full of children with a copy of my pet goat in his hand. (laughs) He's about to yank just a big bundle of wires. Like I'll just, which wire, which wire I fuck it. Yank them all. What's the worst that's going to happen. The bomb goes off. That's happening in about three seconds. Anyway, Jimmy, Right before he can do that, actual scientists get the vault door open and are like, no, don't touch that. The person who jumps in front of James Bond reaches down and flips the switch that says on to off. And the bomb is immediately deactivated. And in the credits of this film, this character is named Atomic Expert. It's a real deus ex. What the fuck? In a, like, oh, who? So it just had an off switch. I, I guess I just didn't read. Honestly, I never learned. I was busy looking for the nine volt battery. That's how I diffuse all my bombs. I give it the old bond lick. It's also how I got Pushy Galore to spill her secrets to the feds. The bomb countdown clock stops on 007 and... Uh-huh. And then Bond looks over at the atomic expert and he goes, Ha-ha, what kept you? Like, you dick. I just saved your <laughs> right. life. Where you been, shithead? I was down here fighting Screwjob over there. By the way, that's what you're smelling right now. And it, he's definitely melted. I got a license to kill. I'll kill you too if you tell anybody about this. So Felix is in the group that has stormed Fort Knox. And he's like, hey, we got that letter from Pussy Galore, and we swapped the gas, uh, but I wonder why she changed sides. And James Bond says, I must have appealed to her maternal instincts, which I don't understand. Did he get her pregnant? Either that, or he just realized, like, it turns out that she and I both share a mommy fetish. I like sucking on her nipples till I get milk. It's, (laughs) I don't know, man. I don't understand the line at all. But essentially... (laughs) He fucked her until she changed her moral philosophy, which is not nothing. And then they just lead James Bond to a plane where they're like, we're going to take you to see the president. He's like, that sounds great. Do you have some booze? Because I plan to meet him drunk. Felix says, "Ah, Bond, I know you're an alcoholic. So I told him to put booze on the plane for three. Three? Who else is going to be on this plane? And is it a couple of sexy ladies? He's like, no, Bond, I got you uh, three portions of alcohol. There are no sexy ladies. Oh, shit. Okay, well, maybe it's for the best. 
I've got some sores that I really should see at least a pharmacist about, if not a, a medical professional. I gotta be honest with you, Felix. I'm gonna need you to double the booze and increase the number of birds by one. If I'm not forcing <laughs> myself drunkenly on a woman, I'm not traveling. They get in the air. James Bond is on the plane. He hits the, the call button, apparently, to get some booze. And out of uh, the cabin comes Goldfinger holding a golden gun, of course. Then we get a really unnecessary cut to the pilots all tied up on the ground or whatever in the hangar. It's like, I yeah. didn't need to see that. I get it. He captured the plane. I, I totally get it. It is literally impossible that Goldfinger is on this plane. There is no conceivable way unless he's a shapeshifter, time traveler, and master of the mystic arts all at once. I also want to say, when I watched this movie for the first time recently, I stopped it right here to see how much was left in the film, including the credits runtime. And at this point in the movie, there are exactly three minutes, 30 seconds to finish this thing out. Of a an almost two-hour movie, we have three minutes left in this film. That's right. And so it is crazy how quickly they wrap this shit up. Because Goldfinger says, Mr. Bond, this movie has gone on long enough. It's time for us to wrap things up. And Bond says, ha ha, look here, Goldfinger. Don't fire that gun in the plane. It's dangerous. I mentioned this earlier to Pussy Galore in the movie, but I felt a need to repeat it in case anybody in the theater left to go relieve themselves or get a box of junior mints. By the way, where is Pussy Galore? Uh, she is flying the plane. I will deal with her once you are dead. Also, I'm probably going to sell some of her clothes online. So there's uh, some some more wrestling in the cabin. The gun goes off, a window shatters, and Goldfinger uh, or a dummy of him gets sucked out the window. And it's all right. There's no way this fat ass is going out this window. At best, he's going to get stuck in it like Winnie the Pooh. And when they land, they're going to pull him out, probably pantsless. Oh, bother. <laughs> or like the alien in Alien 4 gets sucked inside out. That's all right. Yeah, it's something like that. And also at this point, we got 237 left in our movie, Bo. Right. At the point that he sucked out, including credits. So James Bond, now that Goldfinger has been sucked out of the plane, runs to the cabin because the plane is losing altitude. Pussy Galore is trying to pull up out of this nosedive, but it doesn't look like they're going to make it. Then we see the plane crash into the ocean and explode. But uh, at the last minute, James Bond and Pussy Galore have parachuted out of the plane. We don't see that. We just see them having landed. Thank God. Felix is in a helicopter searching for him. And Pussy Galore is like, down here, hurry. I think he's coming too. And then James Vaughn wakes up and he's like, oh, what are you doing, Pushy? And pulls her back down to the ground. He's like, this is no time to be rescued. Look, I want to have sex with you in the woods like a bear or a hyena with lots of grunts and sweating. Now we can do this one of two ways, the hard way or the really hard way. You pick, sweetheart. Listen, this is really not my normal M.O. because I couldn't find any booze on this island. But... I'm willing to make this work if you are. And by willing, I mean distinctly unwilling. Goldfinger. Credits roll. Which, by the way, I love these in credits. They're about 57 seconds long. <laughs> and I like at the end they tease the next movie because they say the end of Goldfinger. But James Bond will be back in Thunderball. To put you to sleep, Bo. You call it a tease, I call it a threat, Chad. Here's something I like about the Goldfinger song. It kind of sums up how I feel about this whole movie. That it starts off kind of, you know, Goldfinger, the man with the Midas touch. And you're like, okay, I get it. He, you know, it's Goldfinger, he's got the Midas touch. By the end of the song, Shirley Bassey is just, just screaming, he loves gold. 
And that's kind of this movie. Like, there is no subtlety. By the end of the movie, it's just like, look at this sexy guy. You think when they went to, like, Ray Parker Jr., they were like, you got 24 hours to write a theme song to Ghostbusters. What? Like, just listen to Goldfinger. Do that, okay? (laughs) He loves ghosts. Ghostbusters. The men with the proton pack. So that's Goldfinger. The first of our six James Bond movies. Bo, after the first movie, do you like James Bond any more than when we started? No. Uh, much, Damn. much less. Oh, um, Goldfinger, like I've said, I've seen it a handful of times. And I know this is one of the better Bond movies. And I don't really like this one. So I'm in trouble, Chad. Worst movie I ever saw. Oh, the next one will be better. We are getting into territory like the the next movie we're going to cover is a a Bond film I've never seen. And I'm curious about that because Hope Springs Eternal. I am not a pessimist by nature. I do not, as a rule, enjoy the character of James Bond uh, or uh, the films, including that character. I find him to be mostly a a disgusting uh, character. I got to tell you, Bo, for our next film on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is the one and only James Bond movie that George Lazenby made, you will not like the character of James Bond anymore. But I do think there is a good chance you may like the movie itself more than you cared for this one. Based on what I know of the movie, it sounds like an interesting kind of weird departure for the series. So I'm I'm curious about that. Goldfinger has its moment. I, I, I think the villain of Goldfinger is his plan is stupid. And I don't like any of the stuff that happens at the stable. I think all of those scenes need to be cut from this movie to make it a tidy 90 minutes and make it feel like it has some pace. Yeah. But I think he's a good villain. I think I, I do think James Bond is just kind of a shitty hero in this. Not only because he's kind of a shitty character, which he is, but he just doesn't affect the plot very much in this. He he just kind of happens to be in the scene. He doesn't save the day. Right. Kind of like Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. With the exception that, you know, Indiana Jones is a much more compelling character and, and it's a much more fun movie and the action sequences are better and yada 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 but and he gets drunk with a monkey there's a monkey in it you do have fox force 5 i wish that had been more of a thing in goldfinger like the the things that i liked about it were the things that were super goofy but they're just they just kind of pop up in this movie and then disappear you just got to give it time you got to let it simmer it's all coming together once we get into roger moore territory it's going to be firing on all cylinders the problem is once you get that goofy then the filmmakers decided to overcorrect and like let's get a little more serious and then let's get a little more goofy so we will ping pong back and forth through uh throughout this series so come back and see us in two weeks time as we will be presenting on her majesty's secret service starring the one and only george lazenby in his one and only performance as james bond as always like rate review we've been getting um a little bit more email we've been getting more reviews we don't really you know beg for reviews or or we don't really ask for reviews but if you want to drop us a note pick six movies at gmail.com we love hearing people's feedback and recommendations for seasons and what they liked and didn't like and uh we're usually pretty good about uh, following up uh, on social media so if you want to chat with us reach out and we will return in kind Bo, any final thoughts that you have on goldfinger speaking of social media i know a couple of people i i have seen say i love the james bond movies i'm a little i'm a little afraid to listen to these episodes because you're going to 
go after uh, movies that that some people really enjoy. You know, it's fine if you if you like these movies. Obviously, you can enjoy whatever you want. And and if these, movies, I love them. Yeah, like Chad's a big uh, a big supporter. But also, if you feel like you need to tell me about why I'm wrong about not liking James Bond movies, uh, you can keep that to yourself. <laughs> we will see you in two weeks' time, everyone. Thanks for listening.